Hello, and welcome to a very special bonus episode of Into the Aether. It's a low-key video game podcast, and my name is Brendan Bigley. I'm Stephen Hilker. Let's uh, let's talk about Final Fantasy VII. <laughs> <laughs> There's really no way to begin this one with any kind of uh, subtlety or chill, honestly. Yeah. We uh we we kind of set out earlier in the year um kind of like an an unspoken but then also frequently spoken rule that we wanted to cover games that people have called the le- the best game of all time and that's kind of been like our loose guiding principle for the year and we started with Chrono Trigger which was you know kind of one of those like big daunting holy shit video games like kind of changed the genre changed the medium et cetera et cetera. And I'll be honest, I was like pretty nervous for that one. Um, I had a really good time playing that game. Uh, I, I played a lot of it while I had uh, the novel coronavirus in France. Uh, I was trapped in an apartment in, in France and played it on my Nintendo DS. And that was honestly kind of like, I mean, not great to get the novel coronavirus, but like a best case scenario for that game where like the, really the only thing I had to do was sit there and play it. And I was also simultaneously playing the Tokyo RPG Factory game Lost Sphere, which is like a direct... Uh, a direct inspiration point for that game was Chrono Trigger as well. So I was like in Chrono Trigger at the time. That was like all I really had. And uh, that was a, that was a good space for it. And, and I, I finished that game, loved it. We talked about it on the show, but uh, I was definitely nervous before that one. That pales in comparison to how I feel like right now in front of this microphone. <laughs> there have been multiple times over the past like month and a half, because we've been, we've been planning on doing this. We've been playing this game for a long time. There have been multiple points where I was like, maybe we don't do this. <laughs> and I, I've thought about reaching out to you and being like, maybe we do this in like five February or March so I can like play it more than once or like play it and then like go play the remake again and you know like just like coming up with all these different things I was like fucking rip the band-aid off bigly just do it and uh here we are yeah for the record this was your idea I know it was it yeah I think if, if you listen to the show before uh I've been pretty vocal about <laughs> how much this game means to me and and I'm not alone. I think like we we've covered a lot of very big, very important games, but I think this is one of those games that was such a huge completely like changed the history of where games were headed, like yeah. moment of pop culture that it is daunting to talk about even though I feel like this game is like an old friend of mine. You know, it's also yeah. like my friend who became a celebrity. It's like why why would I talk about them now? They don't I don't own them anymore. They're yeah. out on stage. You know um <laughs> this game so, for me feels like i'm acknowledging feelings i have for my crush it's like where my <laughs> it's like the butterflies in my stomach like i don't know exactly what to say i'm just like excited you know yeah it's like yeah. exciting to feel love you know like that kind of feeling that's how i feel every day knowing this game exists so now you're in my <laughs> now you're in my space you know yeah I do think it's worth knowing, especially if this is your first time listening to the show. Hello. Thank you for being here. I waved in real life. Only Steven saw that. Um, (laughs) That uh, Steven played this game like around when it came out. I have not played this game really at all until we started doing the show really was the first time I tried playing it um, on the Switch. And we talked about it a little bit when I first started playing it. But I I made it um, to the end of the Midgar sequence and then stopped um because i knew that that's how much of the game the remake encapsulated and was like that'll prepare me for the remake right incorrect <laughs> as it turns out but you know that's Nomura a story for another scoffed day. in a yeah. tower in the distance yeah um but this is my first time like playing the whole game and um 
I think maybe one of the one of the first things to mention, just because I know it's an inevitable question that people are going to ask before they even get into the part where we're talking about the video game itself is like, hey, if you haven't played the game and you want to stop and you want to play it before you come back to this episode, where do you play it? I think the like modern ports on pretty much everything are like incredible. The Switch version yeah. is like unreal good. And uh, that should have been where I played it. But I did not. This is my first big reveal is that I did not play it on the Switch. I played an emulated version of the PS1 version, like the original. Oh, like wow. I, I played it like fully unfiltered, you know, like really just tried to give it give it its due um, in, the, in the way it was released. The only difference being that it was on my computer. I'm so moved that, that you did that. When you were revealing that, I was like, did you do the three discs? Did you have that like vinyl experience I of wish. taking the discs out? Yeah. Yeah. There was a part of me that was I like. I still have the PlayStation copy. Yeah. yeah. There was a part of me that was like, do I get a PS2? Because they're like kind of easy to come by at this point, just because there were like millions and millions of them. Um, yeah. Like, do I get a PS2 and a copy of Final Fantasy VII and like really try and go for it? And I was like, yeah, it's a step too far. And uh, had like a really whirlwind experience, I would say, over the course of like three weeks of playing the original ps1 version emulated which was like a pretty good experience but definitely not as good as it would be on the switch so that's my big recommendation is like the modern ports of it are really good even the one on mobile is like pretty good so before you before you even ask that's my recommendation for where to play this game yeah they're, they're a nice middle ground because the other end is like okay you have like the original emulated or not mm -hmm. and then you have the modern console ports which are essentially the original but there are two like optional things that can ease the process a bit. You can have things go 3x speed, which is especially helpful in like random encounters. And you can also turn on like infinite limit breaks so your characters just constantly have their big special move. Yeah. Um, I didn't really use that much, but I did use 3x speed a pretty good amount because I have... I have played this game so many times that I'm like, I, I can cheat a little bit this time. I had yeah. like the opposite experience where I'm like, my rule was like, I couldn't speed up boss fights. And honestly, there are some fights where if you make a three X speed, it will be harder because like, <laughs> right. Yeah. You have to the make so, so many precise. tense decisions. Yeah. yeah. And there are some cutscenes where they just don't let you speed it up. They're like, no, 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 you can't, you got to really savor this one, which yeah. I kind of appreciate that, like that restraint. Um, mm -hmm. but you know, I think like for a modern audience, those options can help you get into the game faster. And we'll talk more about like we, we had some listener questions and a lot of people ask, like, you know, is it worth playing this game, you know, going through all the sort of PS1 stuff to experience the story? Uh, my short answer is yes, but I have more nuance to that later. But I think yeah. the modern consoles are a nice way to like ease it a little bit. But then on the other end, you have the PC Steam version, uh, which there's a whole modding community that basically have like, you know, turn off random encounters, like whatever you can think of doing, someone has yeah. made a mod for it, basically. So that, act that actually is a button on the Switch version also. Oh, really? Uh, which is nice. Yeah, turn off random encounters, which is cool. Oh, um, I wish I knew that. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> but um, yeah, that I, I would not recommend doing it the way that I did it. Um, and honestly, I, th I think if you're the kind of person who you know has heard tell about how important this game is and want to experience the story for yourself and, and there's a lot to talk about in the story even outside of the things that i think like pretty much everyone knows from like a pop culture standpoint there's a lot to talk about um there's a lot of stuff to experience that hasn't like permeated into like general conversation about this game um that's worth experiencing but if you know for a fact that you're not the kind of person who likes this style of game in general i would recommend just getting it throwing on all of those <laughs> 
cheats and just like zipping through it i think you can get through the whole game in like 20 hours if you just turn all those cheats on like keep 3x speed on turn off random encounters and then there's like a there's like a god mode that essentially like keeps you fully healed and and as you said uh fills up your limit break to the max and uh honestly the thing that'll take the longest is always having the limit break because those animations are so long yeah. so like that's that's the one way in which you are maybe potentially shooting yourself in the foot but for the most part you can like zip through that game that way and it's worth doing just to like experience the story because i think that's that's the major reason to play the game i would say yeah i mean there's obviously a lot of like fun and new wants to be had within the mechanics and and you know especially for the time they're really interesting but they're like better and i'll I'll say they're better versions of turn-based combat out there and uh, it's pretty serviceable and becomes more interesting once you have more materia options like i think once you get to sort of the end game that's where you can be really creative with how you build your characters i will say though just while we're talking about it we've brought to the show many retro rpgs and i don't think this one is especially hard to get into yeah once you get used to the present because the thing about this game is like this is the first 3d final fantasy and also was amongst the very early era of 3d games so it's kind of like without companions in the exact visual style it is because i think the later even the other ps1 final fantasies kind of figured out how to use the hardware to make a more consistent visual language so i think this game like looks like unstuck from time but i think once you get used to it i would argue and I have a long history with this game, so maybe a bit biased, but I would argue the presentation adds more than it subtracts to the experience in some ways. Yeah, there, there's like the actual like technical uh, know-how and like the technical holy shit of how they put this game together. Um, that's probably worth going into at some point. But there is also the like when you look at screenshots of this game, and you look at this game in motion. I, I think out of context, it seems like it kind of looks like shit. It seems like yeah. maybe like muddy and the character models don't really match the background that well, unless you're playing the PS1 version. Um, <laughs> yeah. But for the most part, and you and I have talked about this extensively, especially in the lead up to the remake coming out is this idea that your mind is filling in the blanks. Like this game leaves a lot open to the imagination, I think. And eventually you just kind of do that. Like eventually your brain just kind of tricks itself into being like, actually, everything's cool. Everything's all good. Everything looks great. The game is beautiful. Uh, you stop seeing the like the like uh, Popeye the Sailor Man version of Cloud and you see like the version of Cloud that's in the battle sequences. Like the game starts to look really wonderful the more you play. And that's, I think, due in part to just like really wonderful writing uh and, and a yeah. great sense of place there's a there's a point made in uh the action button review of final fantasy 7 remake where tim rogers basically says like the original game almost begged to be remade immediately because the game has like eight different visual styles of the characters like you have the polygon sprites but you also have the, how the characters look in battle mm-hmm. and also how they look in cutscene, and also the illustrations on the menu right. which i think is a great observation and i think that's really true because even like at that time like even once eight and nine came out there were people who were fans of the series that complained about the way seven looked so this mm. has been like a thing to get over to play the game like pretty much since it came out um i think it's because like i would argue that the the way the characters look in battle and in cutscene looks great like still you know there's really great character design and great art direction there and i think the polygons have grown on me because they're just 3d versions of the super nintendo sprites basically so like there are scenes where it actually helps to have the characters look that way because it adds a little bit of levity to what otherwise would be like a really harrowing scene or 
Yeah. So. I think one of the reasons this game is so good, honestly, and one of the reasons I think it captivated audiences so much is that there is kind of this like knowing tongue in cheek energy throughout the whole game. Like it's not all just like, you know, we're, we're being crushed under the weight of capitalist ecological nightmare shit. Like there is there is funny stuff in this game legitimately and, and having those kinds of character models running around kind of does add to that a little bit. Yeah. And the, and the times in which they lean into that energy, I think, are the reasons why this game, uh, I, I think was was so prevalent and so interesting to so many people uh, initially because it's not i think it could just be like a dour horror fest the whole time yeah and it's it's really not and i think one of the major themes of the game in my opinion is sort of the positive spin of existentialism where it's like things are given meaning by people and their lives and their associations with it so like Mm -hmm. Even a place like Midgar can be home and can be somewhere that like, despite its issues, like is a place people want to protect and live in. And you see that like pretty much from the very beginning, like there are places that are essentially garbage dumps that have been given the same feeling of an RPG town in like a medieval village. Yeah. You know, and I think what I really recognized more this playthrough than in the past was how much of this game, like from the cast to the setting to the mechanics is a complete deconstruction of Final Fantasy as a series, you know, and it's kind of interesting to realize that because this ironically has become the blueprint for so many, you know, Final Fantasy games, but also just like JRPGs in general. And sometimes if like anything that gets this big, sometimes it feels like the lessons that people took from it or the the influence it has had in both like character and design sometimes will kind of surface level, you know, like, yeah, like you didn't, you didn't fully understand the text. If this is your takeaway from it, it's it's very, (laughs) it's very similar to the thing we always talk about with souls likes. It's like, you don't need the bonfires and the fog walls to be a souls like, but for some reason, every single one has a bonfire and a fog wall before a boss room. And what I was really happy to see in remake without saying too much, because we're, you know, remaining spoiler free in this section, but for both games, but FF7 remake really, exhibited a strong understanding of what makes these characters interesting yeah because i think there's a version of like i kept waiting in the many many years leading up to the idea of an ff7 remake which again existed since 1998 Mm -hmm. i always was worried based on the spin-off media that to be fair i haven't experienced a lot of it i've yet at the time of this recording i've yet to watch avon children which will change literally tomorrow for our patreon bonus yeah Um, yeah patreon.com slash into the cat uh, should come out, I think, the same day as this. So if you if you want to hear our, our take on Future Evan Children. Steven on Evan Children. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, just like Cloud in Kingdom Hearts, which honestly, sick. I love his outfit and Kingdom- <laughs> the, the banded sword. Hell yeah. But yeah. Cloud became such an icon for JRPG protagonists. And sometimes it felt like Cloud to me was interesting for different reasons than just brooding spiky hair and big sword you know those are like cool features of the character but like it's his arc that makes him who he is and in some ways too cloud is also a deconstruction of like the chosen one protagonist which we'll get more into once we talk about spoilers but yeah i i was really happy that remake not only understood this cast but has even further fleshed them out in ways that i think retroactively make me like them more in the original which is cool to see especially like i think what remake did really well too is the relationship between you know so far we've only been able to play as Aerith, tifa 
Barrett and Cloud. And I think remakes spend a lot of time showing like, what is Tifa's relationship with Cloud and Barrett and Aerith? Like, mm-hmm. You can kind of get a feeling of like both how these characters would play together, but also it wasn't all in orbit of Cloud. Like pretty quickly, Remake understood that this is more of an ensemble story in some ways and like really led with that earlier than this game does, which is interesting. Yeah, because structurally, the the original is kind of like, you know, th- that question is really only asked in terms of how these characters are related to Cloud specifically, because Cloud is your protagonist. So, you know, uh, it's a lot of like, okay, what is Barrett's relationship to Cloud? But you don't really get a lot of the like Barrett and Tifa of it all. Uh, and and the, the most fleshed out those characters get are when you get to go do their side stories and you get to learn more about the other members of your party. But it's not really as much like, okay, here's the cool side episode where Tifa and Aerith hang out. You know, that, that doesn't really yeah happen in the original and happens a whole hell of a lot in remake uh and it rules uh it's really it's really fun because these these characters are enduring and great and wonderful and there's like so much to be said and and so much that has been said and written about them all but it it was nice to see the remake kind of understand that and it was interesting to go backwards for me at least to to come to come at this with the full context of what remake is all about and go back to the original That, that was one of the things also to me that really stood out about the successes of remake which i would say first of all uh until this that true yeah until this that was the first final fantasy game or the only final fantasy game i'd ever finished was remake and now i finished two of them and they're both final fantasy and they're seven. Both- <laughs> <laughs> you're killing it honestly yeah. i would th- this is again to to always quote the hard drive article like world's biggest final fantasy fan is, <laughs> has played most of yeah. the games or whatever there there are there are a handful that i'm like you should really see it through to the finale and then there are some where i'm like you can kind of just like dip your foot in and bounce whenever you know yeah uh seven i think is definitely worth seeing at least until the beginning of the third disc which you know Mm -hmm. for context on the playstation one the game was three discs and once you reached a point in the story there would be this great scene of like character art of of one of the casts and it would say please insert disc two yeah Uh, it was very dramatic from what i know the game is actually on all three discs but because of the cutscenes, they just had so much room or oh was, interesting there were there's such a large amount of data that they had to spread it across the three of them yeah and so much music also i yeah. mean this, the soundtrack yeah. is gigantic and even if you compressed all of the soundtracks down and all those video files down yeah i, I can understand why they would need to be on three discs that's pretty wild i remember like because i i play this game as as like a nine-year-old which i'll get into in a bit um yeah. but the next two final fantasies were four discs so in my child brain i was like a game is like a triumph if it's multiple discs so when 10 came out i was like one disc like i, I yeah. scoffed it I, I thought it was like, oh yeah ps2 it's gonna be like eight discs no it's just they figured out how to put it the, all the, yeah, just, yeah disc technology became yeah. better um dvds came out yeah that's really funny yeah. yeah i i also felt the same way at the time I was like always amazed when games came with two discs and i i never had any games that came on more than one disc so when i went to friends houses and you know when i saw final fantasy 7 for the first time at a friend's house there's three discs blew my fucking mind because at yeah. the time, the only thing I had still was the Sega Genesis. So I was like, I have a little cartridge with Vector Man on it. And like, that, was, <laughs> that was my experience with gaming. Yeah, I also, I, <laughs> I have a feeling that Remake will be three parts as kind of a nod to the three discs. It also feels like... Just, yeah, I think they said it is, right? I think so. And I also, this is just a hunch, but I think there's going to be a Vincent DLC chapter, kind of like they did for Yuffie. I hope so. Because I think they're going to, like, they, those are the two optional characters in the original. You have to, like, do little side quests to recruit them. And 
it seems like they're just going to be part of the main cast no matter what in yeah, remake, thank which God. I, i'm really happy about because i can't imagine a world without those two i yeah that's like one of my one of my big points of feedback with this game is like i think there's so much ff7 is trying to do and it is such an ambitious game Mm-hmm. And there are just a lot of like new ideas in this game. Like you can see like little seeds of like a Bioware game with like, yeah, there are small moments of like relationships with characters and your actions like influencing that. Mm-hmm. And I think they also just liked the idea of like, what if there were a couple party members that like you could totally miss? And I think that's like cool in theory, but like they're so easy to miss that you'll just like have a less good time without them you know it's yeah. not like a oh this is cool to have it's like how would you play this without vincent valentine saying am i cool i guess i am and then doing a backflip yeah there were a few things i went into this game specifically being like i i definitely need to follow guides for a couple things specifically and that was one of them was like i'm yeah. not gonna miss having you and vincent in the game because if i came to this fucking episode without the context <laughs> of those two characters like I that'd be bad hosting, dear listener. Be bad hosting. Yeah. So I guess if you don't mind, I would love to hear your. I know we've talked about this many times on the show, but just mine. while we're here, yeah. I mean, I'll I'll share mine too. But I'd love to hear your before now your history with Final Fantasy in general and like sure your view of Seven growing up, and then obviously how that's changed doing this show. Yeah, I was aware of Seven, and I knew that Seven was a big deal when it came out. Um, but again, I only had a Sega Genesis, so I was just trying to beat the first Sonic the Hedgehog, and that was kind of my <laughs> my experience with games. And didn't pick a Final Fantasy game up for a long time. But my first like real interaction with Final Fantasy Seven came in the form of Kingdom Hearts when Cloud yeah. shows up in in uh, the Olympus Coliseum, um, and is like one of the first major boss fights of that game, which is really funny. It is, and uh, that was really enticing because even then by the time that game came out which i think was like 2002 i want to say was the first kingdom hearts yeah, 2001 or 2002 early vicinity, yeah. yeah even by then final fantasy 7 had permeated culture so much that like i knew a lot about cloud strife i knew i knew the guy's deal and i knew that he was like a sad brooding spiky haired boy because i didn't have the full context of having played the game right I, di- I didn't know really the ins and outs of his character and his persona so i had that kind of surface level take of cloud going in and i was like wow he's so cool uh, and I, I just i loved i loved cloud in that game um and then kingdom hearts kind of remained my my connection with final fantasy for many many years um I, i've said on the show multiple times but kingdom hearts 2 was like my favorite game growing up yeah um, i loved it did everything like the sephiroth battle etc cetera, etc cetera. like i really i played the ins and outs of that thing to completion and at some point in there I went to our town library and I rented and watched and then forgot everything about Final Fantasy VII Advent Children. Um, <laughs> and I have to imagine it's because it all went completely over my head because I had literally no idea what was going on story-wise. And it turns out that movie's a direct continuation of this game, uh, which I didn't know. Oh, wow. um, so, yeah, I, I have totally forgotten what's going on there. And then since then, have been like trying here and there to get into Final Fantasy games. I think I've talked on the show before about my experience trying to play Final Fantasy X, uh, which went really well until my save got deleted because uh, the still nascent PlayStation Cloud save system just like deleted my save. And uh, yeah, I've tried playing Final Fantasy VII a couple times. I, I jump scared you once by inviting you to my house. Uh, you, you came for the holidays and I invited you to my house and I said, we're going to play Oblivion for literally 10 hours straight. Uh, and then afterwards, I'm, we're going to record a podcast episode where I'm going to surprise you by telling you I've been playing Final Fantasy VII. And at that point, I played, I want to say five to six hours, which contained like the Midgar sequence yeah. um, and then had stopped. Uh, and that's that's about as much as I had played until this one. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like now you're, you know, 
talking to me about the trails series and like you are fully yeah. onboarded as like a JRPG convert, fan. Yeah. You're a convert. But I feel like weirdly enough, Final Fantasy is still the series that is not really clicked yet. You know, we've covered 14, which we both really enjoyed, uh, but kind of a different experience. We, yeah. I mean, there, there have been like, I think you really enjoyed 12 and 14 and nine in passing, but like not to the same degree of Dragon Quest that was like a religious experience for both of us yeah. or like, you know, other series that have kind of become almost synonymous with our show and our quest to celebrate games we love yeah yeah i i think i don't i don't want to be like I don't like Final Fantasy because that's not the case at all. I really like this game, but I, I've never managed to get over the humps of some of them. Like even 12, which I think is maybe the one I like the most outside of 7 and 7 Remake. Even 12 at a certain point got so tedious and I got stuck on this one part that was like, I actually think I might have fucked up like three hours earlier in a way that is going to prevent me from moving forward. Or yeah. alternatively, every time I've gone back to play 12, I forget all the mechanics. I don't want to do the like really long opening couple hours again, where as I, I think one of the one of the reasons this game is such a success is like it just starts with a bang and that's the thing everybody says about it but like launching you directly into what's cool about final fantasy 7 is one of the best things about final fantasy 7 you don't like squall waking up with a headache and eight no and having to go to the principal's <laughs> office and then getting chastised for skipping class yeah maybe not as strong of an opening as the train sequence yeah uh, um i do i do still think that the the like two that are looming on the horizon for me are six and nine yeah um i've played a lot of six and really liked it and i'm still waiting for that port to come to the switch hopefully um and nine i've also played a lot of weirdly i played like 10 hours of that game and i really really liked it and then put it down for whatever reason i'm sure something else came up for the show but that's another one i want to eventually like finish and really put time into nine's one of my favorites and i think there was a time where i tried to convince myself it was my favorite because i wanted to sound cool and different but it's this one there's no way like <laughs> so yeah. I, I guess um I'll, I'll try to keep this short because uh, I've shared on this show many times what this game means to me. But um, I'll, while we're having a whole episode about it, I'll share in more detail. But I just remember like there wasn't really a time in my life where games weren't a big part of it. Like when I was born in 1990, my family already had an NES and mm. my like first like actual memories are with the Super Nintendo. So like I would consider that like my first system, even though it was like the family system. Yeah. Uh, and even then, even in like 93, we called NES the old Nintendo. So it was like, it would be like, do you want to play old Nintendo or Super Nintendo? And <laughs> for me, games were always a very social thing. Like we were always kind of the house that would invite people over and play games together. Like the Super Nintendo had a lot of great like co-op with super, even Super Mario World, which is largely like structured to be a singular experience. Like you could switch off as Mario and Luigi. Donkey Kong Country had a similar thing yeah. with, with Donkey and Diddy. And Kirby Superstar, one of my favorite co-op experiences to this day on that console. You could turn your power into another character for two player. Yeah. It was sick. That was really cool. So like I, I think even as a kid, games to me were were I don't know if I had like the vocabulary for this, but I, I felt that games were kind of inspiring me creatively mm -hmm. past just being like a fun toy. Like, I don't think I, I 
foresaw them being like narrative devices like i think the only game with a story i had played in that era of like early early childhood was like maybe donkey kong you know like <laughs> where it's like go save don't go save donkey kong from king k rule yeah so yeah i mean that, and then with the n64 it was similar like four controllers we had just moved to a new town and we're kind of meeting our neighbors and like mm. when you're when you're really young i just feel like you're kind of friends with your class like before you have like your own group so like my house was just like the weird house with like a bunch of cats and nintendo so like everyone <laughs> liked hanging out so i i think that the thing that really set the stage for ff7 for me was was honestly pokemon red and blue because like that was probably my first rpg so that yeah. was like the game that taught me that like, oh, I like making a team and I like this sort of planning phase of turn-based combat. Mm. And I was absolutely the Pied Piper of Pokemon in my grade. Like I was the first <laughs> one with the cards. I, you know, showed up ready to go with like strategy guides. And that was kind of my energy for like a lot of middle school. <laughs> I just showed up with like backpacks full of game guides. And like I was destined to uh, have a podcast about video games, I guess. <laughs> I remember going into fourth grade our middle school was fourth grade to eighth grade which is kind yeah. of like a wild collection of years like every year you're like a new person yeah. you know coming back from summer <laughs> like i don't know i'm figuring it out man yeah. i don't know i don't know what this body is yet so i remember in fourth grade all of a sudden my worst nightmare happened pokemon wasn't cool anymore mm. like no one no one was sh- we were 10 it should have been cool but all of a sudden because we were in middle school like no 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 right we're over that yeah so i remember meeting this guy who was simultaneously my closest friend but also weirdly a bully like it was that era where you couldn't quite tell like do you want to hang out or like why are you mean you know yeah i know exactly you're talking about yeah (laughs) so this guy uh it was the beginning of me uh, weirdly getting along with, with jocks that are secretly very strange and nerdy. So I feel <laughs> like this guy just, I think we were able to share our like true selves with each other, even though we were kind of in different worlds otherwise. And he told me this close friend slash bully slash rival was like, what kind of games do you play? And I told him, I was like, oh, you know, Mario, Kirby, Pokemon, all that. And he was like, have you ever played Final Fantasy VII? And for the last time, I I answered that question saying no uh, and asking what that was. And he basically this this guy told me he also told me about Chrono Cross. So shout out to this childhood friend of mine for basically setting my fate in stone. Um, (laughs) But he told me about these games and then I rented them with my dad. And again, I mean, these are really foggy memories. Like I recall these sort of events and I'm trying to go back to that time and think about like, what was the feeling I had when I played it? Because I remember distinctly like being seven and putting on Mario 64 for the first time and just being like completely shocked that I yeah. could move in any direction. <laughs> I think my feeling with Final Fantasy VII was just like being in awe of how cinematic it was and how there was like a story happening. I was like, this feels like a movie, but like I'm mm. in control. And I don't know if I would have said this then, but I, I honestly like I'm thinking back to like that time in my life, like we had just made this big move. And like, that's just a very difficult time for any kid. Like you're going through a lot of change at once. And I honestly think Final Fantasy VII was... Like, even outside of games, I think it was the first piece of media I'd experienced that was really comfortable with sadness. 
which is a weird thing to to think about. But I just feel like that game, it made me feel less alone in a way that I can't quite describe. But it just made me feel like, oh, like there are other people who who are going through their own struggle and their own quest to find community and a sense of home. And I honestly do think that the setting, we've joked that it reminds us of New Jersey, but I do think that actually made me more immersed because not that like where we grew up was like Midgard, but there was something so immediately relatable about the setting. Like if anywhere on earth, I feel like there is like, there's an element of Midgar everywhere, you know, in some capacity. I've, I've done a big, a bit of digging. And as yeah. it turns out, this game was originally supposed to be set in New York city. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. So yeah, there's a North, there's a How East wild coast energy. Is that? I think yeah. it's like, I think, I think it's, it's not an accident that we picked up on the fact that this game feels like New Jersey. Yeah. Um, I think we grew up in Comtown, but we were like still in the radius of, of yeah, Midgar. Absolutely. Like, and, and what I've said on the show before is like this game simultaneously proved to me that that games were not just like a toy I liked, but that they were an art form that inspired me. And this game really made me want to tell my own stories and to mm. write and make my own characters. And even to this day, when I'm working on creative projects, like I can feel a little bit of FF7 in everything I do. Like I think these characters are major archetypes, but I can always kind of trace it back to like, who's the Barrett, who's the Cloud, who's the Tifa, you know? <laughs> and I just feel like, the other thing I, I really love this game for is is really to this day being a great example of what fantasy can mean that it doesn't have to yeah. adhere to a Lord of the Rings thing, which I love. Like I love that style of fantasy too. But I also think it's so cool to see this like modern urban setting with magic and with a feeling of whimsy and hope while also being like crushingly real mm-hmm. and about things as heavy as like the horrors of capitalism and grief and mental health issues, which I picked up way more this time than in the past of like, you know, the not so subtle exploration of one's own struggles with depression and, and other uh, mental health related adversity. So I've gone back to this game many times. It's kind of been like a comfort for me over the years, like always go and replay. And I actually didn't beat it when I was a kid. I, this and Ocarina of Time, I would say were the first two games that like inspired me in that way. Mm -hmm. I think Ocarina of Time is also a game that's really comfortable with sadness. Like that scene where you leave the forest for the first time and your friend just like watches you go. And like, yeah. uh, Anyway, another episode about that. Yeah, we'll do a bonus about that. (laughs) But, uh, I didn't like the idea of it ending, so I just sort of replayed it over and over again. I didn't actually beat it until I was in eighth grade. And, you know, in high school and in college, I would go back to it. And I feel like in those playthroughs, it felt more like pure nostalgia than anything else. And I started to recognize like the areas where maybe it didn't hold up as well, or maybe it like kind of started to age a little bit. And I was also discovering new games like Mass Effect and, you know, Mm. These things that were like pushing games even further in an interesting narrative direction. And, you know, I think we had obviously talked about it a bunch on this show. And I've, I've, I started a playthrough of it earlier this year, not knowing we would end the year with a bonus about it. But this playthrough has kind of reminded me of so many thoughts and feelings and, and, reasons why i love this game i think it's also been the first time we're like with a fully adult brain and with like kind of a clear objective of like talking about this game and having the experience we've gained doing this show and being a little bit better at discerning like why and and how i feel 
about things the way I do. I just feel like this has felt like the definitive playthrough in some ways where I'm like, Mm. I feel much more confident in talking about this game as a work of art and not just like the thing that my child brain like latched on (laughs) to. Yeah. So that's my experience with it overall. Yeah, I I think, you know, for me, at least coming into this experience was very much like a a lot of the show for me, at least has been a little bit selfish in that like even though i'm playing your favorite games of all time like it really is a way for me to kind of fill in the the backlog of my brain you know and and kind of get that like historic context for all these things that i've i've seen ripple out in other uh, pieces of media that i've enjoyed um because like the the influence of final fantasy 7 doesn't just touch like jrpgs and other video games but has expanded like way outside of the reach of, of the medium i would credit this game like i feel like akira and ghost in the shell are largely credited with like making anime popular in the west Mm. but i would i would add to that ff7 and honestly just like adult swim as like continuing that and and yeah i mean the the art style of ff7 has not even just like anime but i just feel like it's it's everywhere like it's right even if you don't know games you probably recognize cloud in some way yeah but that having been said there is this piece of me and i i you almost feel it as a person if you like me are playing this game for the first time now like as an adult and you don't have that nostalgic attachment to it there is almost that like sense of loss that you feel while playing this idea that if I had played this when I was younger, that I would be a different person, which yeah. is really interesting. And I've, I've talked to a lot of other people who have played this game uh, multiple times over the course of their life, especially like the people who played it like you when they were you know younger. And the, the interesting takeaway is that I feel like everybody walks away from it feeling the same way. But for you, you've already said it, but I've, I've, I've heard this from other people. For you, you said that you feel like it's like kind of revisiting an old friend or like, you know, hanging out with an old friend again. And for me, it feels like friends I've lost weirdly. Like oh, I, wow. when I, when I play it, I feel the sense of, of like grief and the sense of loss of like, I mean, the game isn't so subtly about the loss of innocence and, and you feel that while you're playing it, like really, really intensely. But there is also this other angle for it. That's really fascinating. Like thematically, I, I think that this game is, is, is tackling this idea of what does the individual self mean within like a community? Community and a society and that's really powerful still because this this is a game i mean this game was made in japan and in most places that aren't the united states of america the idea of like stringent individuality is actually kind of like looked down upon like for most people the idea of like yeah it's, i'm gonna like help me first like i'm the most important person here etc cetera, etc cetera. i'm gonna get what i'm owed etc cetera, etc cetera. that's not a thing that most of the world is like cool with um and is actually seen as like a bad trait and this game taking a really nuanced look at that idea of individuality and saying the individual is important within the systems that it inhabits and how do you serve your community is like really 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 powerful and is definitely not something i would have understood if i had played this in 1997 um so i'm while there's a part of me that's like oh man i wish i had played this when i was younger i'm actually really glad that my first like complete playthrough was now uh because those kinds of experiences are especially like not not to link it too much to this shit but like especially in the realm of like most not most but a lot of other countries in the world were like very comfortable and cool with wearing masks before covid happened and then when covid happened it was like oh i have to do the thing i've always been doing my whole life easy whereas in america it was like a nightmare to get somebody to put a piece of cloth over their face to not kill somebody else i think playing this game 
today and in, in this in this era is especially powerful and kind of disturbing because yeah. like Shinra is not a subtle critique of capitalism. <laughs> and yet, like you yeah. can recognize like this person feels like this person or like mm-hmm. the way Shinra is responding to this global crisis is like eerily uncomfortably similar to the way our government is doing X, you know, yeah, so like right. there's a lot of commentary that that feels really close to home. At the same time, it makes the story even more inspiring because I, I do think the game has an answer. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's not like a cure, but I think the game has a philosophical stance and it's exploring a extremely personal story alongside an end of the world's plot. And yeah. I think for the only time in Final Fantasy history, those two intertwine beautifully. Yes. Because usually, like, I, yes. I feel like speaking about taking the wrong lessons, like pretty much every Final Fantasy since this game has felt like, okay, seven was a big hit because... There was an over-the-top <laughs> villain, a doomsday event, and uh-huh. a weird plot twist about certain characters. Yeah. And you can tell how forced that is. And you can see later Final Fantasies like feel like they have to hit the same beats. And sometimes it kind of feels out of left field for those stories. Mm-hmm. Whereas like as much as this game is is doing a lot of things that are larger than life, they all do serve a thematic purpose. Right. You know, even Sephiroth, who is like a pretty over the top villain and arguably doesn't have like super clear motivation, I think fits thematically very well and yeah. feels more like a force almost than a character. Yeah. I also forgot how much Norman Bates there is to that guy. I feel like even his <laughs> theme has a bit of the psycho like <laughs> Like yeah, even in, totally. in One Winged Angel, which is a lot of fun. But uh, yeah, yeah. Do you have anything else you want to cover here? Or so much. I, I feel like we're we're okay. Please share. Yes. I, I one of the things I want to talk about before we get into more specifics is is kind of the idea of the enduring legacy of this game, and especially for people like me who haven't really played it until now. I, I think one of the larger questions that I was asking myself a lot throughout the course of it is like, is this game exciting? Is this game compelling? Because there's been decades of people saying so. So like, you're kind of like primed amp to go into it being like oh this is gonna be a big deal and i can't wait to check it out and maybe that's a little bit too daunting i mean even the way i felt before we started recording kind of felt that way you know even the idea of just talking about and like adding my voice to the choir people being like yes it's great is like scary in a way but also you know i like i'm glad it was i'm glad it was received and was a hit when it came out but i do think that there is this world that we've kind of created or at least that this game has created where people are even more drawn to final fantasy 7 now than ever before because of how much of a hit it was in the 90s like i think i think this is one of those games that and and i've been asking myself a lot like why is this the one that got all the spin-offs you know like why does why does this have like advent children and a remake and dirge of cerberus and every crisis, crisis and yeah. crisis core and like everything like why, why? air g's the ps1 <laughs> fighting game that features cameos from tifa red 13 and cloud why did this game get the b- treatment? You know, the, yeah. these are, these are <laughs> the questions you have me. to ask yourself. And I, I think really the answer is like, this is the one where they got it right. And I think that kind of circles back to why some of the other Final Fantasy games haven't really worked for me, because a lot of the a lot of the takeaways I've gotten from a lot of the other Final Fantasy experiences I've had is like they're trying to recapture some of the magic of why Final Fantasy seven worked, but they don't serve that thematic 
purpose. They don't, they, they're, they're yeah. not clear in their, in their intentions, I think, in terms of what they're actually trying to say about the game or, or about the world, um, you know, through the lens of this video game. And I think this game is so clear. I mean, obviously, immediately, because the game, this is not a spoiler, the game literally opens with you committing an act of eco-terrorism uh, to destroy a power plant uh, to prevent uh, Shinra, the Shinra Electric Company, from drawing the life force of the planet out, uh, which is really on the nose the game's about more than just that but like you know it's really on the nose but the game makes its intentions clear immediately you know it's like this is your duty as a as a person who lives in the planet to save it and i i think that's i think that's really powerful and then you go and you play other final fantasy games and like that's you don't really get what they're going for for like 10 to 15 hours and i think that's that's the big delineation for me not even just in final fantasy games but like in media like if i'm playing a piece of if i'm playing or watching or reading or whatever interacting with with a piece of media and I don't know what it's about for 10 to 15 hours and the thing has failed I think which is I've been thinking yeah. a lot about it just because I'm also playing God of War 2 right now God of War Ragnarok yeah. um, and I think that's one of the things that that game is struggling with at the moment where Absolutely. I literally am 10 hours in at the moment and I still don't fully have like a grand idea of what the game is saying and where it's going and like what the end goal is and what I'm trying to do I have some ideas about what that game is trying to say thematically but this game is so immediately resonant in that because of that that opening but even after that like when you just have your first conversations after that experience like in avalanche hq and it's like cloud and barrett and tifa hanging out those little bits of conversation tell you everything you need to know about like okay cloud is definitely struggling with something <laughs> like he's not he's not just a guy who's trying to act yeah cool. he, he's set up as an unreliable narrator pretty immediately yes which i think is really well done i think the revelations of that character could be like seen as left turns if they weren't so beautifully set up like from the beginning yeah yeah there's there's so many threads left on the ground in in those first like i would say maybe two hours that the rest of the game like revels in pulling on like the, the rest of the game really does pull on all of them and it turns out that when you pull all of them it just you know does that magic trick where it, uh it all turns into one big knot uh and that's that's really wonderful because i i think the reputation of not even the genre, but of, of games in general that are this long is is this idea that, of course, they're going to like end with a giant, bombastic, completely off the wall boss battle that's going to have nothing to do with the thing you were doing, you know, 15 to 20 hours ago. And this game lands that like this game does that and it works. And I think it works so well. I think the failing of that trope is that so many people try to recreate that and it doesn't work at all. And that's one of the brilliant things about remake. And I don't want to give away what's going on in remake, but like the way remake is able to recreate that feeling at, at its end is like unbelievable yeah it's fantastic yeah like i still have my have my like concerns and doubts on where that that remake trilogy could go mm -hmm. but they did so well in that first chapter that i'm pretty confident in in whatever namora has planned for it. even if he casts himself in it which i'm sure he will <laughs> like i'm still gonna have a great time because yeah. I, I just trust the direction of that game but all that said i've just been thinking a lot about the legacy of like why this game worked and i think i think you know it's it's a whole bunch of things i think a lot of people have written about this a lot of people ask this question over the years but i think your point that it you know says not every piece of fantasy needs to be tolkien adjacent you know like there 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 are other versions of fantasy that can exist if you think about it a little bit uh and that's very nice but also the characters are great it leaves a lot I think unexplained, which is, you know, fun in the moment and then interesting to explore in other pieces of media. And I'm kind of excited now to like go check out some of the other stuff, starting with Advent Children, I guess. Uh, but generally speaking, just like explore the rest of the Final Fantasy VII uh, universe, I guess. But also, I think the big thing is that like they just haven't captured it again. 
you know, like they just they truly haven't had a Final Fantasy hit the same way seven did since seven, as far as I can tell or remember. I think other ones maybe have gotten close. But the fact that they're like constantly chasing that high of Final Fantasy seven, I imagine as a business, you're like, why don't we just have another spinoff for Final Fantasy seven then? Yeah, I feel like 10 came close just in terms of like popularity. And that seemed to be like huge when it came out. I do remember that. I didn't even have a PS2 at the time when that came out. And I remember that game being huge seven was huge but like amongst you know snobby nine-year-olds like it wasn't a guaranteed hit when i showed up at your lunch table with the strategy guide if i was going to be met with scorn or admiration at least at least in the u.s yeah yeah yes yes i learned that game had a hundred million dollar marketing budget from uh (laughs) from playstation which is more i think i think that costs that's more money than they actually spent making the game which is wild. I think the combination of 10 and Kingdom Hearts 1, I just think made Final Fantasy even more popular on kind of a mainstream level. Yeah. And it was it was a really nice like moment for me as a really I mean, I was only like 10 when 10 came out, but like mm-hmm. it was cool like being able to like meet more friends who like openly liked this game. And, you know, I, I also really liked 10. And 10 was almost in some ways the opposite of seven, where like the technology was so ready for that game to be like yeah yeah we got like beautiful scenery yeah. beautiful cutscenes, fully voice acted which we did you the know, thing that, you want yeah yeah exactly so i feel like but even then that weirdly is kind of like remaking seven you know like mm-hmm. while 10 has its own identity and its own story and a very different vibe i feel like as if you got onboarded via seven you saw 10 and thought about how cool would this be if it was seven <laughs> right you know yeah. So yeah, like, yeah, yeah yeah and i mean even eight eight feels so much like it's it's like the creed to seven's nirvana you know where it's like <laughs> i i like eight before eight fans come at me like i i, I admire what eight is doing it's kind of the weird younger sibling of, of seven's success but <laughs> but it's it's really trying to grasp at like okay we're gonna like we're gonna do that kind of modern setting again and we're gonna have a brooding protagonist but like i don't know what that game is about thematically i could not tell you God, i love the world of eight and i love i love the ideas that eight has uh and i don't like playing it I wonder if that's one that like maybe I'll just look up what happens in it. The card game is sick. Playing Zell's mom to get the Zell card is like a highlight of the series <laughs> as a whole. But uh I think you're right that like seven has stuck in people's minds and hearts. And even if your first one was 10, you heard about seven. So like seven is in your head, whether you even played it or not, Mm. you know? And I think the thing about Final Fantasy two is that six felt like a magnum opus for Final Fantasy as it was, you know, Mm -hmm. I would say like a lot, if we're thinking like, what are the best entries in the series? I think six is often talked about as if it's the best because every game that preceded six was kind of like that it was you know steampunk medieval fantasy it was a linear story with the big cast and and all that and and six just felt like the best execution of what was sort of established in four specifically which yeah. like uh, to, to their credit like those games were really four and six specifically were going after stories that were not even thought of at that time like the idea that a game in 1992 would open with you being a soldier of like an evil empire and questioning like what what is my complacency doing to the rest of the world here yeah uh those are like big ideas that are that are very early in this yeah series even now even if you go play four now that opening four sick yeah Yeah, four is awesome and and six i would love to talk to you about because six is doing stuff that is so interesting narratively but it is also like 
kind of you know it's aged beautifully because it's the super nintendo everything about it is like a gem of that time mm. and seven meanwhile is like a total deconstruction of all of that and yeah. it's so ambitious and is like visibly breaking at the seams but it's like trying to do something new and yeah. i think again going back to that like fantasy can be anything that was the best possible way to follow up six because how do you want up six if not to just change what the series means right what the series could be yeah totally yeah it really it, it gets back to the roots of why final fantasy the franchise exists in the first place right which yeah. is like it's a team of people thinking that this is the last game they're going to make before their company shuts down yes. so like we might as well try everything um, yeah. it really feels like that again and also i mean we haven't gotten too into this but it's probably worth mentioning this game exists on the playstation specifically because square at the time squaresoft got into kind of a feud with Nintendo because Nintendo was working on the N64 and the cartridges just like weren't big enough to really contain the ideas that the team at Squaresoft had. And it was, as far as I can tell, at least from my research, Hironobu Sakaguchi, who is like one of the patron saints of the Aether, I think at this point. Oh yeah. um, yeah. Now the creative lead and founder of Mistwalker Studios. But uh, it was really him that was like, Nintendo specifically has been holding us back, not even technologically speaking, but also they had this like really rigorous approval process for the kinds of stories and the kinds of things that could be in video games that released on Nintendo systems. And they were like that coupled with the technology and knowing and like seeing the blueprints for what the N64 is going to be and how much data you can contain on a cartridge. We can't make a Final Fantasy game that we feel good about on these systems anymore. Um, so I, I think a lot of people talk about the like the corporate breakup between those two. And it was really rooted in a bunch of like very creative i mean not rooted entirely obviously there's like a whole corporate capitalist element to it but sure a lot of it was rooted in a bunch of like really creative people being like we are at our fucking peak brain capacity wise and we want to make the greatest thing we've ever made and nintendo literally won't let us squares coming off making final fantasy 6 and chrono trigger which like at yeah. launch were talked about <laughs> as if they were the best games of all time and they honestly are so it's like yeah yeah they, they are at their absolute peak right for sure so that was when like okay well we're gonna we're gonna have this big corporate breakup and we're gonna go over to playstation and playstation has this disc based system and we can have multiple discs and like you know the rest is history but i i think i think that's one of the things that's worth considering also is like it really did get back to the roots of the franchise even in the like corporate element of it you know like even <laughs> back down to hey we just took a huge risk and bailed on our video game licensing partner that we've had literally since the company was founded <laughs> and that's very final fantasy baby that's yeah, hollywood that's it <laughs> this is also the moment where the numbers matched up in both japan and worldwide because yes. We got Final Fantasy 1. 1 was 1 in, in both countries. And then the next Final Fantasy the US got was 4, which was released as 2. Mm-hmm. And then 6 was 3. So like, we were talking about off the show about if 7 was 4 and how confusing that would be. 7 was 7 yeah. worldwide. It all came to a singular point. I'm glad that we skipped from 3 to 7. That's, that's pretty fun. That's, <laughs> that's like when, when uh, Microsoft skipped Windows 9 and went from Windows 8 to Windows 10 big big brain moves but I, I think it's worth mentioning also that like internally if, at least again from what i read online it seems like the vibe inside square was like everyone knew that this game was going to be a huge hit and everyone was so excited to be using all of this technology that was like really brand new like they were using like the kinds of technology that pixar used to make toy story to make this game like yeah that, that level of stuff and needed to go on like a huge hiring spree to bring, bring a bunch of like new creative blood into the company as well which revitalized like the company culture too 
Um, so you just had like every element of this kind of hit. It really was like a lightning in the bottle thing. And I think that's so important because you really feel it when you're playing this game. You really feel this like everyone is firing on all cylinders here. We've talked on the show in the past and one of the reasons I even got into the game in the first place. But um, one of like the most prominent things in the game's opening is you see Aerith walking down the street and there's this big poster for a, a, a musical, like an, a musical that's in the game that's called Loveless. That's a direct reference to My Bloody Valentine's Loveless, which is yep. one of my favorite albums of all time that they were just like listening to constantly inside Square Enix. And if you're if you're making a video game and you're blasting Loveless in your studio while you're making the video game and everyone is like, this is great and the best environment to be making this game in, I'm going to like the video game. I do love how 90s it is in general. Like Even the style, like the fashion of the NPCs yeah. and Midgar, like they all have kind of like dyed hair and leather jackets. Yeah. And I mean, like the shot of Cloud on the motorcycle with the sword and the red background mm-hmm. is like almost too much, but it's perfect. It's perfectly 90s. Yeah. And you can, you. It's it's interesting too, just extrapolating it out it's so interesting to see how like this game then clearly inspired the wachowskis to make the matrix or at least like some elements of the matrix which then defined the 2000s like that's like this game was weirdly both a cultural touchstone for the 90s and the one of the major influences for like 2000s fashion yeah and also i I was thinking about like anime protagonists as well and Mm. i'm like i don't have i don't have any data on this but i just feel like like ichigo (laughs) from bleach like had to have looked at cloud you know like there's there's definitely like cloud informed main characters for a bit (laughs) in video games and anime yeah and not to discredit those characters obviously but like there was obviously a huge splash of influence yeah and that's everything i have to say (laughs) in the spoiler free section well, I'm glad I'm glad we we reveled in this moment. I'm also glad that we had a lot to say even without getting into the story. I can't imagine how long the next section is going to be. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. So All to prepare, right. why don't we take a quick break here? And just a heads up, dear listener, the next section will be spoilers. We're going to try to keep it spoilers for the original. I think once we get to listener questions at the end, we may end up having to spoil remake because there are a lot of questions about sort of the two of them and how they relate to each other. Yeah. So we will refrain from spoiling remake in the next section, but it will be full original spoilers. Yeah. Uh, I may end up spoiling Chrono Trigger also, but we'll see. Yeah. And uh, maybe Chrono Cross, throw that yeah. in the in the middle too. And apparently Psycho <laughs> by Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> Birds, Rope, and Vertigo also might be on the list. So uh, we'll see. But you not soon. North by Northwest. No, you, no, no, that no, that no. one will remain unsullied. You can go watch that one uh, and yeah, uh, no- just enjoy it. Notorious as well as safe from spoilers. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yeah. should we just keep listing Alfred Hitchcock movies? <laughs> like Rear Window is actually one of my favorite movies like of all time. Rear Window is great. I also I haven't watched Rope in a long time, but my sixth grade time capsule, my favorite movie was Rope, <laughs> which is kind of a weird. That's unbelievable. Pick. That is that is the era of me bringing guides to school where yeah, my favorite shit. movie was Rope. What the hell? Yeah. So anyway, let's take a break and maybe take a quick shower or something. <laughs> bye <Bye-bye>. bye. <laughs> See ya. back dear listener uh this is your last heads up uh full spoilers ahead we're going to be talking about the original three disc final fantasy 7 and uh again we will do our best to not spoil the remake but full spoilers for the original game in this section i'm gonna Uh, talk about what happens to bugenhagen so get ready (laughs) 
my work here is done. Hearing you unprompted say Bugenhagen, I'm I'm good. So I think I'm I'm down to let this conversation flow however it needs to, but mm. I think just to help frame it a little bit, we're going to maybe block out. Like we're not going to go beat by beat with the story, but the game is pretty expertly paced and clearly divided into acts so i think we'll probably talk about like okay like let's start with the midgar section and then what follows and, and kind of break it up in that way yeah um you you have described this game uh as essentially having like the part that everybody talks about and then and then this like kind of strange middle chapter that nobody really like as as I said, I think in the previous section, like hasn't really permeated the culture, like hasn't really become a thing that people talk about a lot. Yeah, and and it feels a lot like the it feels a lot like in the Bible, like Jesus is born, and then the next time you hear about him, he's thirty three. Like it's like there's this whole middle section. Yeah, where it's like so Jesus. important actually. Yeah. Like the middle stuff is really good in this game. I was I was actually really surprised because I I thought that the reason that I had only heard about Midgar pretty much my entire life was just because like that was the best part of the video game and that the rest of it was like fine uh and that's not the case no Midgar section is great i even remembered i've i've said on this show that like i think the strength of the game is that setup and that like there is a little bit lost when it goes full high fantasy later on i actually take back that fully because like while (laughs) i do think that the setup pays off and i i do think that like that stuff is so important to the identity of the game but like we said earlier i do think it all intertwines really successfully and the second disc content here where it goes like full evangelion is where i think the game kind of reveals its intention and i don't know like as much as i love the the prologue in midgar and i think honestly remake i do think justified the choice to have the first game fully there like i Mm. do think that paid for the most part there's some filler and there's some bizarre pacing where tifa's like well this place is gonna get destroyed next chapter so you have to do every side quest now (laughs) uh that stuff is bizarre but other overall i think it worked and and yeah I, i think i think that the game really delivers on this idea of of deconstruction in the middle chapters um and that's where it's really focused on cloud's identity crisis and also the whole ensemble because you know we're jumping ahead a bit but there's like a whole second act of this game where cloud tifa and Aerith are not in the party and it's like up to everyone else like sid is the de facto leader and it's up to everyone else to do it. And like, I love that part of the game. I remember liking that part a lot. But, you know, I, I think where the game can potentially seem silly is everything with Sephiroth. But that all worked way more for me this time because for me, there's this undercurrent through the whole game of apathy as like sort of the main the main villain in some ways. And I mm. feel like, yeah, absolutely. Every character is trying to carve their own sense of identity in a world that is either denying them a place or not asking for one. And the villains of the game are people that have embraced nihilism and apathy and think like, why even bother? Like it's hopeless. Either take a completely apathetic stance or a nihilistic stance like Sephiroth where he's like his reaction to learning his identity is like, well, I might as well just destroy the world and make a new one for me uh you right. know which like that that quest is where like the the final fantasy thread got pulled too far in later entries where there's always like a guy who wants to destroy the world and make a new one but i i saw sephiroth much more as a double to cloud in some ways where it's like these are the two ways 
to deal with your issues, you know, mm-hmm. like for that particular character. And there's a lot of doubles like that. Like Barrett has that too later on with Dine, where like there's sort of this revenge at all costs versus like a protector role that I, I, I think that that all makes the like one winged angel stuff work much more for me. Yeah. And I think also the game is constantly asking and then later on directly asking, like, what does saving the world mean? I think you know, from the very beginning, Barrett is like, we're on this quest to save the world. But like the planet inherently means nothing. It's the people on it that give it meaning. And everyone has to sort of find their own personal meaning for the save the world quest, which is such a brilliant moment that I kind of totally forgot about. But anyway, that, that's stuff that I want to kind of focus more on as we get to the later beats of the story. But I guess just to help frame the millions of thoughts we both have, <laughs> why don't we go back to where it all began in Midgar and kind of just talk about that. I'm really curious what you felt because you have finished Remake, which is entirely Midgar. Yeah. And I'm really curious, like, you know, not without spoiling too much, just like how those experiences kind of compared to each other and like what you felt of that prologue in general. Yeah, that, that definitely goes back to the um, the idea of our brains filling in the blanks a bit. You know, yeah. I, I feel like the the brilliance of Remake is the way it's able to fill in those blanks for you. Like, you don't really need to use your imagination. You just understand. But also, I think the fact that they fully understood what they were going for in that PS1 game. Like, when, you're, when your brain is filling in the blanks in Midgar visually, I'm talking, like, aesthetically in terms of, like, the... the um, the pre-rendered backgrounds and stuff that sense of art direction is so strong that everyone's brains fills in those blanks the same way is what i realized you know the the fact that everyone had the exact same idea of what midgar was supposed to look like and that the remake just kind of solidified that and said like yeah we all had the same picture we're not interpreting (laughs) anything it's it's just what was intended really highlights how brilliant that space is i think in the first game uh, or in the original game. But even outside of just the way the game looks aesthetically, I, I think the Midgar section of the game is like crushing in in its, you know, in in the weight of of the the systems at play that are, you know, holding these citizens down. Um it's hopeful in the ways that the characters like, you know, those in Avalanche try and rise up against it. Um, then gets crushing again <laughs> in like multiple ways. It gets crushing again, literally. And I think overall, the most brilliant magic trick of the Midgar section is making you want to not leave by the time it's over. Like yeah. when, when you have to leave Midgar, I think one of the most interesting things about that whole section of the game for me is like, I, f- I feel like, I think it's purposeful. Maybe not. It might be an accidental like nod to this idea that like, Sometimes the oppressed fear freedom from their oppressors in a way and Midgar becomes home for you. But it's like such a fucked up place. But people are like, even though it's fucked up, like this is home for us. And leaving is scary because you didn't even think like the game was capable of having an open world and a whole idea, you know. But this idea that Midgar can be such a deeply flawed place, but that everyone is like, well, if we if we rally together, if we like figure out what our part in all of this is we can overthrow Shinra and we can, you know, re up these systems and, and, and rip them out and create a new home for us, you know, built on the back of the infrastructure that this evil company has provided for us is, is a really hopeful way of looking at such a horrible place, you know? Absolutely. Because I think one of the things that you've mentioned on the show before, but like when you first leave Midgar and you look back at it, it's like this, you know, disgusting, like rotted pit in what's an otherwise pretty like verdant, beautiful open world. Yeah. It looks like a big tumor on the globe, basically. Yeah, Yeah. It's, it's, 
it's really it's really striking just how horrible Midgar looks from afar. But setting the first five to six hours of the game in that and having so much of it be like, yes, you're going and doing the the um, the Mako reactor stuff and like, you know, committing these acts of eco-terrorism. But there's also like the really small moments. There's also, you know, the like flashbacks to Tifa and Cloud sitting on top of the the playground or on top of the well. Um, there's the bit with Aerith and, and Cloud in the playground, um, even like just running around Wall Market and stuff like all of this stuff feels small in comparison to some of the bigger plot beats. But it's those small moments and, and the moments in which you're running around and talking to all of the NPCs individually and kind of getting their vibe that you start to understand how much people have a connection with this. They don't they don't really see it, um, you know, for better or for worse. They don't really see it as an oppressive force on their lives. They just see it as like we're making do with what we've been given. And it, and it takes people like Barrett and like the rest of Avalanche to kind of stand up and say, actually, fuck this life can be better uh you know especially barrett who has come from outside of midgar like he wasn't yeah. he wasn't born and raised in midgar i think that's such a huge part of this is like you as the player can't conceptualize the idea of a place like nibelheim existing you know like that's 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 not even a that's not even a thought that crosses your mind really until you leave and then you get to see other towns that are like fine <laughs> you know even ones that like praise shinra and love shinra but that having been said the fact that these people are coming from the outside world where it is better and being like, we can fuck this up, uh, I think is is really powerful. I love it. I think it's also microcosmic of the quest for the planet later on where like there's this idea yeah. of like, like, why do people bother trying to make a positive life here mm-hmm. or trying to make a difference when it's all so hopeless? Like, even one of the characters that is like very in touch with the philosophy of the game Bugenhagen mm-hmm. he says straight up like i think it's pointless to try to save yeah. the planet but like you might as well try you mm-hmm. know uh and and that's the game is very comfortable with recognizing kind of the hopelessness of what these characters are are hoping to achieve and yet it, it still settles on trying being the best answer because it's like yes midgar is a flawed place and yes the planet itself like there are places that are better than midgar there are places that are much worse and you actually do see shinra's influence on every place even cosmo canyon which is like kind of the antithesis to midgar you learn that like all that planetary equipment is from shinra and Mm -hmm. bugenhagen at one point worked for shinra so it's like everything is a response to or a result of shinra's power on the planet which yeah. which makes it you know that that feeling of seeing cloud as this like tiny little figure on the world map and the music that plays it, it's I've compared it to uh, the allegory of the cave where it's like you know as the player you can't perceive an outside world and the game tricks you into thinking it's going to be Midgar the whole time yeah because you spend so much time there and and it feels open enough that's like you this this setting is so rich it could be it. It could be it. And and I think Remake proved that even more so by like literally doing that. <laughs> yeah. But like I think there's like this this initial feeling of like, oh my god, like look at Comtown, this like nice little quaint village. Look at Chocobo Ranch. Look at uh, you know, Costa del Sol and these these like places that seem like paradises mm-hmm. comparatively. But again, it's like you go to Costa del Sol, you see Shinra employees on the beach on their vacation. Like you see Hojo on the beach, which is still <laughs> shocking to me. I can't believe they committed to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what I really like and what I'm sure we'll talk a lot about is how there are 
villains in Shinra. There are the cackling Scarlet and Heidegger. Yeah. And Hojo, the mad scientist. But then there are people who are like, it's just their job and they actually don't give a shit, which I think is such a great decision. Like the Turks, I mean, they're fan favorites. Reno and Rude are are as beloved as Cloud and Tifa at this point. Um <laughs> But they do awful things. Like Reno is the guy who hits the bomb that blows up Sector 7. Right. You know, and like, I don't think the game is asking you to like them, but there is this weird understanding of like, all of them have a sort of, especially Reno, have this like apathy towards Shinra, Mm -hmm. which in that case, the apathy is his redeeming quality. Because like, he doesn't, like, if it's not a direct thing that will impact his job, he's not going to do it. Yeah. And there are side quests later on. I didn't this is the first time I realized this, but if you do Yuffie's side quest where they play a prominent role, there's a later event where you have to battle them, but you can skip the battle if you've done that quest. And there's sort of like oh. a mutual understanding of like like Reno's like Shinra's not a thing anymore. Like I'm not gonna waste my time here. Like do what you have to. And he moves <laughs> on. Which is I love that. You know, and and even like I did learn I think it's rude, won't fight Tifa. Yeah, yeah, there's that scene in, in uh, Gungaga, I believe, where yeah. Reno's like, who do you like? And he's yeah. like, Tifa. Yeah. Which the remake seems to be having even more fun with those two. Like, yeah. the recurring bit of Rude's sunglasses breaking and he has a backup pair <laughs> yes, is yes, yes, yes. so, so funny. It's so good. But yeah, I mean, that, they're kind of like the Team Rocket. Like they're sort of comic relief on some level. Yeah. Uh, but I like them as as like additional nuance to Shinra. Like not that they're redeemable, but that like there are people who are in high positions of power that are just doing it for very like self-serving reasons and not like grandiose schemes. Yeah. Shinra has been around for a long time, which is worth yeah. mentioning. And it, it's, I think one of the most interesting takes that this game has um, and, and really I don't, I don't want to spoil it, but the thing I have been thinking about a lot while playing this game is Andor on Disney Plus, which is, I mean, it's unbelievable. I've, I've already I've heard great things. Yeah, talked a lot about it, but it's such a perfect. It's a um, it's wild how perfectly it fits into the puzzle pieces that Final Fantasy VII has. Like they're both about really the same things. And the two things that that uh, from Andor that really struck me are number one, there's a line that's great that is uh, better to die trying than die giving them what they want, which feels so much like exactly what this game is about. Um, and the other one is that a, a lot of that show is looking at members of the of the Imperials that members of the empire um specifically people who were like just doing their jobs and like trying to work their way up a ladder you know people who were like born and raised under the influence of the empire and don't know anything else and just like take a job at the empire because like that's what their mom wants them to do you know like their mom is like yeah get a good job at the empire like do something you know keep your head down and uh you know work your way up the ladder slowly over the course of your life that's like a good career path for you because like that's all they know they were born and raised under the influence of something like that and that that's what this game is kind of dealing with as well right where, where you have some many interactions especially when you're in shinra tower you have so many interactions with people in shinra who aren't like cackling villains they're just like people you know yeah um and they're people who can probably be swayed in some way or another to see the truth but at the moment just their complicity is 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 you know villainous right like at 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 least from your perspective in the game like just existing in shinra tower at all and wearing a suit means they're the bad guy but i I think one of the most brilliant things about this game is that like shinra isn't really the villain like the overall villain of the game right shinra is a system and and my one of my favorite bits of this entire game and also in the remake but like one of my favorite bits in the entire game is when you're following the trail of blood up to president shinra's 
uh, office. And you walk in there, and President Shinra has been killed, and he has Sephiroth's sword sticking out of his Such back. Such a great moment. And yeah. he's, he's dead. I mean, the music that plays that whole bit is great, but he immediately is replaced. Like, it's, you know, you have this moment where it's like, oh, we won. We did it. Yeah, we killed yeah. President Shinra because so early on, I think I think it's the the second reactor you're trying to go blow up is when President Shinra shows up and like you know hits you with the big mech and then Cloud falls down the pit, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it really frames President Shinra as like, oh yeah, this is going to be the villain of He's the, the game, Emperor. right? Yeah, you're yeah, going yeah. up a big tower to fight him, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you think like, oh yeah, President Shinra is the guy, and then he's fucking dead, and it turns out that the real villain killed him, and you're like, okay, is the enemy of my enemy my friend? Or yeah, like, it's like a Sephiroth rule, like what is it? Yes, <laughs> That was literally the first note I took when I wrote when I started writing notes for this game was uh, specifically Barrett being like fuck yeah, <laughs> it's like everyone else is like who did this? Oh my god, this is so grisly and so horrible. And Barrett's like Sephiroth is still a hero as it turns out. Yeah, is so funny. But President Shinra isn't the guy that needed to die. Shinra the idea needs to die. You know, exactly. Shinra the company needs to die. Um, and and that's Shinra is representative of so many structures that exist in our daily lives that are that are holding us back. The idea that like of late stage capitalism is constantly looming over everything that happens to us right now. And and that's what Shinra represents, which is, I think, in one of the earlier episodes where we talked about this game, I said something to the effect, which I, I want to walk back, but I said something to the effect of like, this game is even more relevant now than it was then. It's not that it's more relevant now. It's just that they were right in 1997 when they made the game. Yes. You know, it's not more relevant now. It's still just as relevant as it was. It's yeah. just that they were so correct in all of the themes that they were exploring in this game that, you know, they're becoming more they're becoming more prevalent and more, I think, bald faced the more time goes on. Absolutely. There's also this lingering question throughout the whole game that, again, is like later asked directly by Barrett. I think it's when you're in um, you just left Icicle Inn or climbing up the mountain. Mm, and he's yeah. like being here in this like harsh winter environment. You look at the strength of the planet and wonder if it like knows we're even here or if like we're relevant to the planet. Like, yeah, we've been saying this whole time we're trying to save the planet, but the planet would be better off without us, most likely. Mm hmm. And he, he's like, you know, if I was in charge, I would make some changes here. And then he starts thinking about like Shinra and like there's this constant debate in the game, kind of similar to the themes in uh, Princess Mononoke of like industrialism versus, you know, preserving nature. And there's a similar like they're obviously critiquing Shinra, but there's simultaneously an admiration for science and like invention in ff7 and yeah. like the you know the glory of the high wind and like using science to actually help people and help the planet mm -hmm. and i feel like they're you know they refer to materia which is how you use magic sephiroth at one point goes like <laughs> it's it's baby like to even call it magic you know it's just yes yeah it's it's memories of the ancients kind of in concentrated forms so the idea of magic essentially tied to the past and science being the future and those two forces. Yuffie at one point even says on, on the high wind, like why is all material about battling? Like were the ancients like as bad as we are just like constantly <laughs> fighting, right. which I think was a brilliant cause he, the whole game you think of the ancients as this like benign, you know, yeah. omniscient force of good. But like, I imagine that their past is as complicated as this game's present, you know, and the way forward is kind of, again, like understanding one's place in the world and their relationship to those around them. I'm trying to not spoil Mass Effect 3 right now also, <laughs> especially yeah. considering AJ is editing this and they haven't played it yet. Yeah, I mean, like there, this goes back to the themes like becoming <laughs> singular, you know, yeah. these like comments on society and like 
characters like Sid who don't really care about magic or the more fantastic elements of the plot, but like want humanity to continue in a way that is like, you know, helpful and not Shinra. Um, <laughs> it's interesting because there, there, there also aren't like clear answers for that either. But uh, I, I think the, the Midgar section, you know, they, they set up the themes of the game on like societal commentary. They also set up cloud being like, maybe not super trustworthy and Mm -hmm. something that the remake is very focused on is cloud's journey from being very self-centered and standoffish and cut off emotionally to a leader to someone who like opens up to people and there's a bit of that here and a lot of that is through his relationship with Aerith, who i really love and i feel like this section of the game is like the bulk of her characterization Mm -hmm. and i i like her you know considering that she's a deconstruction of a white mage of like the healer like what i've noticed in some pre remake got her very right i would say yeah but pre remake i feel like a lot of like imagery of Aerith was very like almost like saint mary-esque where it was sort of like a maiden <laughs> and it's like Aerith is really weird and she's a very like modern person you know yeah. like she's she's not i i think there are she's elements like deeply funny yeah exactly she has like a great sense of humor uh and is constantly like poking fun at clouds bravado you know and like sees through him literally immediately which i love yeah and i think that those elements of the character remake really really focused on and i like that that extends to her friendship with tifa as well because i think one shortcoming of this game is like they feel like they're artificially at odds often like over cloud like it's never explicit but like there are scenes where like if cloud is like being affectionate with one of them the other will like look jealous or whatever yeah i mean there's like there's literally the date that you have to go on at one point who would you end up going with for that barrett oh really yeah that's amazing that you just did you did you seek him out or did that just happen organically i i guess it just happened organically wow that's amazing i feel like barrett's the standout in this game for me and i want to talk a lot about barrett later but i I was really surprised by i I think i was most excited going into this game about barrett um and and see because i i know that there's like a fraught history with the character and like he was framed literally as like oh we're just gonna make mr t because like i i think you know it's not this i'm not the first person to say that like the team that made this game didn't have like a great idea of like blackness as like uh, as like a trait in a person right. so they were just like oh yeah just mr t just like the big hollywood guy is and the way he was localized is kind of stereotypical it's so, really stereotypical yeah. and there's like i mean he he is like at his core like a racist character i think but there's so much life to him and and yeah. it feels like two characters are like fully at odds with one another in this game and they have so many interesting ideas and Barrett is so like well-rounded as a guy it has a great arc over the yeah. course of it and I, I was just like blown away by Barrett in this game so he was He's a he great was, character he was constantly in my party at all times I, w- I was surprised to hear that because like the date with Barrett is like one of the biggest like Easter eggs of the game because you have to go oh, out really? of your way to make, yeah. Because the, the basically the game keeps a hidden like relationship value between four characters. It's Aerith, Tifa, Barrett, and Yuffie. Oh my god! For the gold saucer date, and like Aerith is heavily favored. So if you're just like playing the game, you'll probably end up going with Aerith. In my case, I went with Tifa. There's a similar mechanic in remake with that scene outside Aerith's house. Which actually was really well done. Like I think we both got the Tifa scene, but like there are actually three or four versions of that scene with different characters, depending on who you've spent the most time with. I'm reading the. I'm, <laughs> sorry, I'm on. I'm on like very much like a 1999 website right now. 
looking at the steps involved in getting Barrett for the date. And I you have be- to go out of your way to get Barrett. Like you I kind of can't believe I did it. Actually, you have to like treat Aerith and Tifa badly to get Barrett. Oh, no. <laughs> well, outing myself is problematic, I guess, in the process. But <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, <laughs> so that's funny. Scene- that scene is is fun. I mean, I think the thing with with uh, the scene with Tifa is very much that she like clearly has feelings for Cloud, but doesn't like outwardly say it. I forgot how it goes with Aerith. Barrett, I think, talks about. Oh just, like, my god! Sorry, I'm reading through all the steps, and I can't believe. <laughs> wait, 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 wait! When Aerith is fleeing from the guards, always ask her to wait and push the wrong barrel each time. I think, like, <laughs> I did that completely by accident. <laughs> It's like so. <laughs> oh my god! I can't believe it. Yeah, that's. What I, I was, was like, surprised. why is this part so hard? Because I kept pushing the barrel every single time and missing the guy. I was like, why can't I? I was like, oh, I guess this is just. Uh, I guess this is just because the graphics are kind of weird. Like all the platforming bits in this game are like yeah. super bizarre, and and I couldn't I couldn't judge like really exactly like which barrel I needed to push for which guy, and I just fucked it up every time. That's amazing. Holy shit. I cannot wait to see what Gold Saucer is in the remake. They're going to have the time of their lives with that. Because they went all out with Wall Market, which is like kind of a mini Gold Saucer before, you know, you get there. Yeah. Still on the 99 site. Yeah, sorry. I got to close this. I just, no, no. I, I can't believe I did all this <laughs> by accident. You're a true fan of Barrett. I am. I went, yeah. I, that was like one of, I went into this game with a few preconceived notions and one of them was like, I want to really experience the Barrett of it all. Like I wanted, yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to walk away with like a really good understanding of Barrett as a character. And his, uh, his friendship with Cloud and his like kind of paternal role in the team is one of my favorite like elements of the cast, honestly. It's fast. I, mean, I think, yeah. I think, you know, I guess we'll get to it in the, in the next section after Midgard, but I, I think um, the reveal of his motivations is one of the strongest parts of the whole game yeah i i really hope that remake part two i know they're going in a slightly different direction but i hope we get a lot of the like character episodes from the original like the red 13 and barrett and sid vignettes yeah Yeah. um we have to but yeah i mean i uh, the midgar section i you know i know at the back of my hand at this point i actually for this episode my playthrough i just resumed the one i started earlier this year which i had stopped right at Comtown. Oh yeah. When Cloud does the recap. Yeah, I had thought about just picking up my save from the first time I'd played it and then was like, ah, I should probably go back and do Midgar again cuz it's not that long and also like playing it emulated, that was when I was using the speed up button on the emulator to like zip through that stuff cuz I knew, I knew it all like the back of my hand already. Like I I remembered exactly all the bits and bobs for like the whole um wall market bit. Like I just even though I had only done it once, really, I was like I know exactly what I'm doing here and uh there's a Yeah. As as a kid, like the first time I saw the cutscene where the whole, that's like one of the most like like detailed cutscenes too, where the cast walks out of the HQ and Cloud's like, "I'll meet you all outside," and then he goes down the stairs in the motorcycle. Yes, oh my God, it's, it's an incredible. amazing. It's still an incredible sequence and and also a great moment of the remake as well. But yeah, I mean, really great opening, and then the the one up of Midgar of like ending in this like really cathartic moment, like on the highway looking at the horizon. It's amazing. And then following it with just like, now you're on the world map. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> it's amazing. Um, yeah, I love that shot so much of them on, on, yeah. on the end of that broken highway. It's unbelievable. And I think this game is just, I wouldn't say it's a short game. I, it's short by comparison because it's like, 
if you just go if you don't do any of the side stuff it's like a 35 hour game i would say mm-hmm. like 30 hours 35 hours if you want to make a golden chocobo it will be 80 to 100 i imagine yeah uh, or maybe shorter but <laughs> a lot of the like optional side quests take much longer and that's all just three stuff what i really admire about this game though and it reminds me a lot of dragon quest 11 of just like how well the game blossoms with traverse traversal options mm-hmm. like you start off in just midgar then you're on the world map and like that could have been overwhelming and like for this era of game getting lost is not an uncommon thing but for the bulk of the of the world map chapters you really only have a few options like you're never really going to get super lost because like when you leave midgar you only have one place you can go and then like from that point on it's pretty linear and i like how as the adventure continues you get some vehicles that give you like a little bit more option Mm -hmm. and like the only time like the game really like considerably opens up and you can actually start ignoring the main quest if you want is when you get the tiny Bronco and that's like the shot down plane that doubles as a boat, (laughs) which I love. Uh, At that point you can like, I think go to Wutai and like do a lot of the side content, which is cool. But I like that they really like by the time you're able to explore freely, you've already been to the bulk of, of places. So you have like a pretty strong vocabulary of the world. So there were only one or two times where i had to look at a guide to find like the next key item to progress like there's one part of the game where they're like they ask you to find the keystone to the temple of the ancients like that's like the one super esoteric moment for me but otherwise like yeah the game's pretty good at telling you like you got to go here next but like now you can go wherever i really enjoyed that like slow blossom of options i think that this style of world map is like a poison for me personally <laughs> Yeah. Um, I, I really don't like it. And like pretty much every game I've experienced it in uh, with maybe the exception of Chrono Trigger like mm. that. Yeah, that world map and the ways in which it reacts to time travel. It's like, yeah, just unbelievable and so brilliant. And this game, I, I love the visual of it. Like I love leaving Midgar being such like a decrepit, frightening place and then seeing like, oh, the world still has trees and blades of grass yeah (laughs) it's like oh okay cool so it's not all dead that's good i guess at the moment but outside of that i i really hope and not to keep bringing remake up but i really hope that they just like don't have this in the remake like i really hope that it's just kind of more linear storytelling that involves like traveling to the different places that you need to kind of in a more like classic i guess uh triple a big budget narrative game style you know i i really i don't want to be running around an open world in that game i think um between towns but i do love the world around the towns and i i agree with you like getting the different traversal mechanics when the when the ship gets shot down and turns into a boat is honestly i mean it's like a bummer but it's also really funny because i was like oh i got the airship this is so exciting oh shit okay yeah it's, well, a, it's a fake out yeah, we'll get exactly. there we'll get there eventually i guess um that was fun but uh yeah i i think this is for me at least the weakest thing in the whole game is just like traversing the open world yeah, I, I kind of understand where you're coming from. I mean, I think uh, just compared to other RPGs of the time, I think they do a pretty good job getting you from point. Yeah, to it's game. better. It's better yeah. than a lot of the other final early Final Fantasy games I played and definitely better than a lot of the early Dragon Quest games that are yeah. like too open. Even five, which you and I both said is like maybe one of the best games of all time. Even Dragon Quest five. I spent so much time being completely fucking lost in that. Yeah. Game. Especially because yeah. you start teleporting all over that open world, too. So you have like no sense of even where you are, where you came from. Um, yeah. I think this game does a good job. Like, being like, OK, like here's where to go next. And I love the sort of like 
like when you go to Cosmo Canyon and the sky like changes color, like mm-hmm. all that stuff is really cool. And I like too that you get glimpses of places you can't go yet. So if you do want to invest in the Chocobo side of things and like right. get to areas like up mountains and in jungles, like you can do that. So this might be a good time to mention that I did I I didn't do a lot of the side stuff in this game. I did like the stuff that I really thought was going to be important. You got like, Yuffie and Vincent. I yeah. got Yuffie and Vincent. I did both of their side stuff because I was oh, like good. this this is important to the story to know who these people are and why they would agree to join this party, things like that. But I didn't do like the Burrito Golden Chocobo. Like I didn't do the Ultima Weapon stuff. And a lot of that really comes down to a, I I think remake is going to have some interesting takes on that stuff um, and maybe streamline it in some ways if, if I were to guess. But also I expect, and honestly just know for sure, like this isn't going to be the last time you and I talk about Final Fantasy seven. And I think as much as I wanted this to be like, okay, this is it definitive. I'm going to go in, I'm going to play this game back to front. I'm going to do everything. Once I started playing it, I was like, I'm actually going to make the game worse for myself. If I like sit here looking at guides, trying to do everything um, and trying to trying to see everything that it has to offer uh because then i'm then i'm not playing it the way that i would normally like if i if i was just playing this without doing a video game podcast i would probably not play it in that way um so i wanted to experience it just like as a layman i guess in a way and i i imagine eventually one day i'll go back and be like let me see if i can go beat the emerald weapon that stuff does give good replay value and like yeah i think this is from an era of game where like they kind of wanted people to be like, did you know if you do this, this exactly, happens? Exactly, right. Which I do really like. And honestly, Elden Ring has has shown that there's a lot of power in that design. Right. And not to constantly keep bashing God of War Ragnarok, but that game is so uncomfortable with you missing anything yeah. that it does like take away from the mystery when characters are like, I wonder if we go down there, if there's an optional quest. It's like, oh my God, like <laughs> let me observe or think at all, you yeah. know? Yeah. Playing this game like directly after that has been weirdly refreshing and like the other side of it is like there are plenty of games and there are moments of this game where you can get completely lost and like there is a lack of design of like i would never know i mean even getting yuffie and vincent which like i would say like you really should like you do have to look at a guide for that because yeah yuffie only appears x amount of time in forest areas and then even when you encounter her, you have to say the exact right dialogue options. Otherwise, she disappears forever. Yeah, it's like it's like comical how easy it is to miss you. Yeah. <laughs> it's wild. And I do like the idea. I mean, in theory, it's like this game is so excited to try new things, which is exemplified in like, especially in the world map sequences where like, you know, you'll go to a place and suddenly there's a CPR mini game or there's like snowboarding. And to be honest, a lot of that stuff really sucks. Like the only, time, the only time I really disliked playing this game is like the submarine sequence and the snowboarding. I'm like, I think it's a lot of it's, it's very funny and it's fun variety. But it's most of the time it feels that like they just sort of half-assed it just for the sake of of throwing it in. Just to, just to have something different that's not a battle yeah. sequence, I guess, to solve every problem. And yeah. I'm glad Remake has embraced that chaos where there's like randomly like pull-up competitions with Tifa and like, yeah. you know, there's a mini game of Aerith like doing plumbing for some reason. So it's like, <laughs> I like that they haven't forgotten that stuff. But even in Remake, some of it's like, why are we doing this? Like, we But here's to. the thing. Yeah. It's, in remake, it's why are we doing this? In the original, it's why are we doing this? And this is too difficult. Like yeah. this is broken. You know. Um, I do like the motorcycle sequence. That's that's a good one. They yeah, did motorcycle it. sequence yeah. is cool. Yeah. yeah. the The big uh, the big thing for me though is that like the takeaway of all of these little mini games is that the only one that really stood the test of time was Chocobo Racing and became its own franchise. You know, it was like <laughs> Chocobo Racing is like 
I I had a pretty it's good pretty time good. with it. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, and it's not surprising to me that that was the one that eventually became its own thing. Yeah, it is. Uh, that like you could see like early mobile game design with the Chocobo Racing stuff. I feel it's like yeah. you're breeding them and getting rare ones in different colors and yeah. And uh, that that side quest is fun, and I do like that the game has an option where it's like, hey, if you go out of your way to do one of the most esoteric, longest side quests in the game we're going to give you the easy switch. We're going to mm-hmm. give you Knights of the Round, which at the time was like this unbelievably long, you know, because all the thing that's worth remembering is like the summons and the limit breaks were all such new things when this game came out. And they're still really right. cool. I think at this point, we're like, okay, I don't want to watch the same cutscene over and over again. But like, although that was such a novelty, because like, you know, in, in the older Final Fantasies, the summons would just like kind of appear on screen and, and imply an attack. But here we're like seeing Shiva show up and blast ice at the enemy and Mm -hmm. uh the limit breaks are an extension of that as well i think the limit breaks are still really cool and i i think that that has been like a mainstay in the series you had told me once what vincent's whole limit break situation (laughs) was and i had completely forgotten until the moment i went and used it for the first time dude becomes frankenstein i cannot wait for the licensing nightmare of getting like the monsters he's just different enough from frankenstein that i think as long as they commit to the character designs that they came up with for his limit breaks in this game they'll be fine like there's also jason mask though yeah Yeah, exactly the the hockey mask is like one step too far but i think they could have some creative interpretation with it they can get away with it weirdly jason has shown up before in final fantasy there's there's a character (laughs) in six named edgar i believe who his whole thing is like using machines and he can he has a chainsaw move where suddenly he has a hockey mask in the attack uh so they just can't get enough of jason That's very um, silly. Vincent, for context, can turn into a demon, like werewolf creature, mm-hmm. then Frankenstein's monster, then a very Jason Voorhees chainsaw wielding hockey mask zombie. Also, his shirt says living dead on it, which <laughs> technically is public domain. So he's fine there. And then just the devil. Vincent is so funny, and I can't tell if it's intentional or not in this game, but like every line the dude has is comedy gold. It's like (laughs) kind of like Hubert from Three Houses, where it's like this guy is so on his own level that like I cannot believe what he's saying in these moments. It really speaks to, I think, a very... I, I don't think it was intentional for him to be funny. I th- I think, you know, it what now almost 30 years removed, it, he's now taken on this like new life of being kind of absolutely hilarious. But I think at the time he he's, he speaks to me, at least as like this, uh this version of kind of like the jaded youth, you know, very like Nirvana era kind of apathy, uh, which is so out of place in this game specifically thematically. Yeah. But he also speaks to me like, oh, this is just namora like throwing himself in the video game yeah it feels like an like a self-insert oc suddenly yeah. one of the things <laughs> i i went and saw uh james cameron's avatar recently with uh some friends of ours uh hello you know who you are if you're listening hi um, and uh my big takeaway from that move which i didn't like the first time i saw it or the second time I saw it and didn't like the third time I saw it either this time. Um, <laughs> I liked it more. I, I, I had more respect for it this time than I did the first two times. But anyway, the big the big thing for me, I feel like everybody always jokes. It's like, can you name one of the characters from Avatar? Do you know who any of the characters names are? And the protagonist of the movie is named Jake Sully, who is this like ex-military guy who gets drafted into, uh, you know, because of weird you know, off camera circumstances needs to become an avatar. It needs to become a Navi. And the thing about Jake Sully is that 
that he is supposed to be the character that the audience relates to. Like he's supposed to be the audience insert. And so isn't he's not relatable or likable really in any way. Not likable, but he's not relatable in any way. And it wasn't until I started watching interviews with James Cameron where I realized that he is James Cameron. And James Cameron (laughs) is like, I relate to Jake Sully. He's the audience insert. And everyone is like, no one else can, though. Jim, just you, my guy. (laughs) And that's that's a little bit how I feel about Vincent is like, I do think that this vibe that he has resonated at the time and at this point is a little bit of a bit, you know, I would say there are moments much like how the Playmobil polygon models add levity. I think there are moments where the game realizes that Vincent's like curtness is accidentally funny. Um, Mm, But I think you're right that as a character, he was supposed to be cool. And he's like. Kind of the you wouldn't have McFarlane. made Dirge of Cerberus if you if you thought that Vincent was a comedy character, you know? <laughs> yeah, and I, I to be for the record, I love Vincent, and I and I do think me too. We were talking about like Yuffie and Vincent being optional and how that kind of is a disservice to players because like they sh- like you should have them no matter what. But I do think it does fit Vincent's vibe in particular that he is optional because like you meet him and he's sleeping in a coffin to like atone for his sins. And mm-hmm. I just I love the the unsaid moment of Cloud where like Cloud has spent at least four hours of the game shrugging and saying whatever <laughs> while right. while tossing his spiked hair then he sees a guy literally sleeping in a coffin say whatever and he's like oh never again like (laughs) is that like how i come off i shouldn't do that right yeah like it's kind (laughs) of like in the office when uh andy first joins the ensemble and michael scott has this moment of like oh is that me and like kind of becomes better (laughs) as a person i feel like that is vincent to cloud in some ways um and yuffie is like just total bugs bunny energy i think like the the thing she says when she joins the party is everyone else walks off screen and she's like nyak, 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 i'm gonna take all their stuff and then runs <laughs> off and like uh, her her side quests in particular were stand out to me this time because i don't i don't always get both of them like especially mm-hmm. when i was younger i don't think i knew how so i just like you know i would get one or the other like ran if i still like look into, into them. them yeah yeah but like actively getting both of them and seeing their side stories. Yuffie's in particular is really interesting because she's from a place on the map called Wutai that is very visually, you know, Japanese or or Eastern inspired place that feels kind of like, oh, this must be like one of the few places untouched by Shinra's influence. And then you learn that it's kind of been turned into like a tourist trap. And Yuffie has moments of confronting her father being like, you turned this place with such a proud history into a tourist destination for Shinra employees. Right. You know, and, and you kind of learn that like, while she is kind of a comic relief character, her motivation and her desire to steal all this stuff is to like amass a fortune to be independent and to also potentially like buy back Wu Tai. Right. She wants to way. reclaim her heritage, right? Like yeah. she wants to reclaim her heritage, but she also is like maybe even too young to fully understand what that heritage is. So she's yeah. like trying to reclaim this kind of idealistic version of Wu Tai that she's probably been told by her parents, who I'm sure aren't stoked about the the Shinra occupation. Yeah. Um and probably you know offhandedly in conversation i would imagine you know throw out like oh things were better in xyz days and she has really taken that on as like okay that's gonna be my purpose then which is really interesting the thing about yuffie and vincent is it's important to bring yuffie into the party because her side stuff really shows you know 
it it highlights uh, uh, the world in a really spectacular way, right? Yeah. Because like you know about the war between Wu Tai and Shinra, but having this personal connection to it is that audience insert, like is that yeah. like audience surrogate thing that you're looking for in that kind of story that really gives it like very personal stakes, and you're like, I want I want to help this for for Yuffie. Whereas if you go there without her, I imagine that'd probably be boring as fuck. I don't know. Um, probably not. But there isn't much to do. All, all this the the two side quests like the things with don corneo and the turks and then the battle tower are yeah. only present if yuffie is in your party oh, they just okay. don't happen otherwise yeah so i i feel like that gives a lot of weight to the idea of the characters in your party rising up against shinra and against these systems because here's a entire fucking country that tried to do it and, yeah. and this is how it turned out for them um shinra literally developed super soldiers to fight against their soldiers because the wutai soldiers were so like wildly strong and yeah. so well trained um but of course they got stomped out by shinra's like unchecked wealth and power which is so fucked up um so you have that side from yuffie which i think is so important she should have been part of the main game for that reason and then you have vincent who highlights like literal actual like story beats like like vincent's vincent and lucretia's story is like literally part of the plot and yeah. i and without that side story there would be so much left unsaid about sephiroth's motivations that's like horrifying like i can't i can't imagine not having vincent in your party and going down that route literally just for that reason so i i think i i'm a little bit more uh on in the camp that like they absolutely should have been included in the main game and having them as side characters almost almost detracts from the overall storytelling i think if you can miss them i'm really excited i, I really really loved remake's interpretation of yuffie and her own little story and they've already done a lot even in the core game to make wutai more relevant to the main plot like it's not something you can miss as much like it's wutai is mentioned on the news in remake fairly often and yuffie's reasons for joining the team this seem clearer which i think is important because like i really like her as kind of a little bit of the wild card like a lot of the party doesn't really trust her immediately i love that she's always sick on the airship like she's just like she was like hey do you know the captain tell him i'll give him my autograph if he like slows down <laughs> i just love like her her confidence and her like kind of the optimism of, of being that age and thinking you can take on the world is it, cool it's also fun to see like i feel like especially in final fantasy but like often the characters are like listed as being teenagers but they act like adults and i right. like that yuffie is like a kid like she acts yeah. like a kid and you see her kind of becoming more of a leader and more of a reliable teammate as the game goes on yeah um i love I, I loved yuffie and i loved vincent and uh that's all i have to say about them i think they should be in the party <laughs> while we're on to sort of the general world map chapters most of these beats like there's the recap of clouds past and Comtown, mm -hmm. and then basically every place you find is sort of like focused on one character was there like a standout for you in this overall act? I think um, I was surprised by Red 13s. I think yeah. it's I think it's a little bit simple overall, especially compared to some of the other ones that are a little bit more complex and a little more nuanced and interesting. Like Red 13s feels like a, a little bit of like a we've introduced this new vibe for Red 13 where he doesn't want to be in your part anymore and he's going to leave. You know, whereas three scenes ago he was like, I'm absolutely going to rip Sephiroth's fucking head off 
with my with my jaws um and then suddenly he's like well i'm home now and i don't need to go anywhere okay (laughs) where did this come from and then that chapter ends with him being like and now i am back in the party and i have a new name i was like okay i i love a lot of the stuff that's happening in there like beat by beat story wise i love uh his his father's name is seto right yeah i love the stuff with like realizing that seto is not like a coward he didn't go run and hide but he he you know fought the enemy and then turned into stone and uh the bit where where the, the statue is crying like all that stuff works for me i think it's really good but it really does feel like a we've introduced the conflict and undone it like immediately it really feels like that whole chapter exists for bugenhagen to tell you a bunch of exposition which i like also like i really love that bit so that that was i i think one of the ones that i was interested in and then ended up being a little bit less than for me but the barrett and dine stuff is really like the highlight for me yeah i, I, th- I think barrett and dine's story overall is like really really striking and and the the understanding that you know dine is forcing barrett to come to terms with his actual motivations and why he founded Avalanche in the first place. And Dine is this representation, this like kind of dark mirror of, of what he could have turned into. Yes. Is really, really, really striking. Uh, you know, that Dine kind of turns inward on himself and feels so much guilt and so powerless in the face of the things that have happened and decides to like, decides to run and hide, decides to not like stand up and like go fight. And Barrett realizing that not only is that not the right way to live, but the way that he's chosen to live, like there could, there could have been a more simple version of this, I think, where Barrett met Dine and was like, well, at least I'm not that guy. But realizing that I'm not that guy, but the guy I am also is incorrect in a different way that Barrett looks at what happens with Dine and says, I am completely fueled by revenge. I think this is the biggest thing for me about, about yeah. Barrett. It's like, I'm completely fueled by revenge. Like what happened with um, what was the name of the town they're from? Coral. Coral. What happened with Coral, like Barrett helped Shinra come in and install yeah. these reactors. Like he is like really directly responsible for everything that ha- that happened there. He's culpable in the same way that we were talking about, like every person you see in a suit in the Shinra tower is also complicit in what Shinra is doing. Barrett is like completely complicit and culpable for a lot of the things that have happened to him. A lot of the bad things that happened to him and Dine. And Barrett, you know, getting radicalized by that experience and being like, okay, now I'm a force for revenge. I'm going to go after Shinra specifically to you know fuck them over for what they did to me the way i was manipulated into doing this stuff and realizing like that's also not the correct way to live like i i need to be fighting for something greater than just myself and just this revenge because it's eating me from inside that realization for me was shocking like that of all of the things that all of the big reveals that happened in this game that was the biggest one to me that was my biggest takeaway from this entire game was was this idea that like especially coming off the heels of remake and and remake being just the midgar section i thought i had a pretty good idea of what barrett's whole deal was yeah and and knowing that that entire section of the game that entirety of of barrett's character in remake but all also, you know, the first five to six hours of his character in Midgar in this game, knowing that that's as much of a front as Cloud's front was wildly mind blowing to me. This yeah. idea that every time he's like, you got to be fighting for something greater than yourself. You're so fucking apathetic. You like spiky haired little brat. I, you need to be fighting for the planet. The planet is the most important thing. And realizing that, that was a lie was like a huge blow for me. Um, I, I, I love that whole section. I thought it was incredible. Yeah, the game is so good at exploring motivation in general. Yeah. You know, like every character in this game has something they want and is kind of living a lie in some way. Yeah. I mean, even if it's not conscious, like 
I think Tifa is a big example of that where like Tifa, I, I think really holds the cast together for most of the game. She's yeah. like the character that will get in between people arguing and be like, calm the fuck down. We got to do this. Mm-hmm. And specifically for cloud is simultaneously like burying her own feelings for him because she sees like how much she clearly loves Aerith, which is like tough to watch. I mean, there's a complicated triangle there, but you know, there's that going on, but also her knowing clouds past simultaneously, not wanting to break his illusion and also not wanting to break her own because Mm -hmm. I don't think Tifa is confident in which cloud she is in love with or which cloud she like actually knows yeah. uh, until until they've both worked that out together in the live stream. Yeah, because <laughs> um, <laughs> she's but, on the uh, back foot for most of the game as well. I mean, she yeah. she she is repressing a lot of not even just feelings, but like just her own opinions about things. She, she is specifically not speaking up when when she thinks she should in a lot of instances. And I think I think that is causing this really brutal internal struggle for her where she's like i don't know how much i should be revealing right now because cloud is also not revealing this stuff and that that makes her feel uneasy it's really it's it's tough to watch i think yeah there, there's a moment with her in the second disc where it's like just her in darkness hearing her own thoughts but we as a player don't see what they are it reminded me not to constantly go to evangelion but i can't imagine that didn't influence this a little bit there is a moment in that show with asuka where she's like saying the same three things over and over again and saying like no that's not me and there was a very similar energy where like the amount of loss these characters go through is really unmatched for like most games like even just in the Midgar section like there's this feeling of loss that that weirdly does unite them and I think once they're all you joked to me off the show that this is a game about men being able to talk about their feelings but I think I think it's really a game about the fact that like if you're able to confront your own past and your own trauma and be open about it that is actually not only going to be like your motivation to be a good person but is also the binding element of all the the valuable relationships in your life because everyone in this cast has gone through something Mm -hmm. you know and that's not to debase what you're going through individually but it's like you know part of being alive is that adversity and not hiding from it but really like embracing that you got over it is is you know what allows you to become the person you really are deep down yeah that is a a message that a lot of stories want to tell and it's really hard to like actually communicate that without feeling cheesy and this game i think really earns like cloud becoming a heroic leader who is like truly there for everyone and to set a good example like seeing him get there is so inspiring and i think that's the reason i love cloud yes it's fun to see an angsty guy with with a big sword walk around (laughs) and say whatever but it's because he stops being that is why we love cloud yeah yeah the most embarrassing thing in the world is that i didn't understand why his name was cloud until this playthrough foggy memories yeah i couldn't believe that i didn't understand that until i was playing it this time it was really upsetting (laughs) going back to red 13 so i don't remember exactly where i read this but there was actually a a significant amount of cut content for his story oh really which i think is why it might feel a little bit like one and done yeah because like there was a whole subplot of him being like a clone of a nearly extinct like wolf race Mm -hmm. and there was going to be like recurring enemies that were like evil red 13s basically oh really and there was going to be like a final decision where like he could kill them but he chooses to spare them because he 
wants his species to continue. So like, wow, they had more plans for him. And, and I, I think if there's any failing in the cast, they might have added a couple more characters than they should have. Because I feel like you have such a foundational experience with Cloud, Barrett, Tifa and Aerith. And I feel like everyone you get afterwards, while I love them all, only a handful are like given the same attention you know like yuffie and vincent are obviously optional and like they have incredible moments that add so much but it's skippable and then you have like red 13 who's like kind of like sort of dropped after cosmo canyon other than the connection to bugenhagen and then you have kate sith who's like truly bizarre and love kate sith i i like kate (laughs) kate sith in theory is okay like yeah he is a puppet controlling a puppet controlled by someone else it's like a theme that's that's said in the game out loud but it's just a little too out there and like (laughs) The the Kate Sith two reveal is so bizarre, and it's like in the worst moments. There's like really dark scene, yeah. And Kate Sith had just made the sacrifice. Then he's like, "Hey, I'm Kate Sith too. Well, yeah, bad timing. See ya." It ripped me right out of that scene. <laughs> And the only way I could respond to it was by laughing so hard, which I guess means that it landed, but it, it is the wildest choice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think for me in all of the world map stuff, the, the part I look forward to the most is the Nibelheim callback in Comtown. Nibelheim is that, unbelievable. Yeah. The first time you get to see like, okay, what is like, what is Cloud's relationship to Sephiroth? Because that's the moment where like the oh, game... Oh, the, the memory stuff. Sorry, I thought you meant going to Nibelheim. Well, both, basically. Oh, okay, yeah. But yeah, I mean, like, because I think all of Midgar is really about Shinra. And then you're given a glimpse of who Sephiroth is. And then yeah. basically everyone, once you leave, they sit down in the calm town and they're like, Cloud, what the hell is going on here? Yeah. Like, tell us, who is Sephiroth? What is our adventure now? Like, what are we even doing here? Um, <laughs> and him recalling, like... You know, when I was in Soldier, I admired Sephiroth and, yeah. you know, this, this and this. And he basically retells like how Sephiroth turned from like his idol to this person that massacred and destroyed his hometown. Yeah. And basically, just to recap, like Sephiroth's whole thing is that he finds out he is a genetically made soldier yeah and he reacts to that news by like becoming obsessed with researching you know genova and the ancients and all this stuff and basically becomes a nihilist and yeah. decides to like enact his revenge on the world basically yeah um how which, much does he know about genova in this research phase does he know everything or does he does he only know the bits like some bits and pieces it's not clear and from what i've been told i have not played it yet but apparently crisis core goes more into this oh that game is all about zach so like you get a right. lot more context for like who the, the soldiers first-hand are. account of what happened yeah here. Yeah. yeah exactly <laughs> which I think like, you know, on one hand, I don't want everything spelled out, but I think if there was any room for like a sequel or a remake, it was about Zack. Because I yeah. think like that's like one of the more mysterious elements of the game. Right. But uh, I don't know. I, I don't think he knows that like Hojo is his dad and the Lucretia stuff. Yeah. But I think he. I wonder if he, he knows re- that Genova is an alien, I guess, is my yeah. thing. Like he because he, he kind of at least my reading of it was like he thinks he's a descendant of the ancients. Right. And that yeah. humanity has like essentially ripped the planet away from the ancients, which are supposed to be like the ruling species of the planet. Right. So he's like, oh, humanity came in here and like it was supposed to be us and they've ruined it. And now they're killing the planet. So I'm going to destroy everyone and then I'm going to be the ancient. and I'll be the only one, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I mean, Genova is not an ancient. 
<laughs> that's <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, like I, I wonder, I guess, you know, if that's his motivation, then I guess that's not in that text that he's reading now that I'm thinking about it. Probably not. Yeah. It's not, it's not explicitly clear. And this moment in Comtown is also not fully accurate. So everything about this scene yeah, is like, that's a good point. <laughs> is a setup for twists. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, you get this and that's, I mean, one of the most iconic shots of this game that, you know, has rippled out everywhere is yeah. that shot of Sephiroth in the fire. Yeah. You know, that is like, even if you could critique some of the over the topness and the motivations, like Sephiroth as a villain is so iconic. Yeah. And you see him everywhere. I mean, like literally, but also like most modern JRPGs I've played are dying to make their own Sephiroth, you know, <laughs> right. like Trails of Arise so wanted that guy to be Sephiroth and just wasn't at all. You know, like he's become like the platonic ideal of villain. Yeah. It's interesting because my takeaway from Sephiroth, I've been thinking a lot about Sephiroth's like enduring spot amongst like the best villains in in media. Yeah. Um, He reminds me sometimes of Jaws in a way like like Mm, the yeah yeah steven spielberg's idea for jaws is like you never see the shark you only see what the shark has done and you know like the moment where present genera is dead is like maybe the clearest you know one-to-one comparison there but you do see sephiroth a bunch especially like in the sequence where you're playing as cloud alongside sephiroth and it does the like dragon quest 5 thing uh where you're a a wee little baby and sephiroth is level 1 billion yeah which is really fun (laughs) i have a Um, screenshot of cloud passed out and sephiroth doing the victory pose (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's really funny but sephiroth is like if jaws had motivation (laughs) it's kind of the idea (laughs) it's like if you're right if there was eventually a scene where the shark was like and here's why i've been eating teens in new jersey yeah most of the first disc which is from midgar to the city of the ancients basically is following sephiroth and trying to figure out what he's up to and then you know suddenly like shinra kind of becomes the wild card at a certain point where there are moments and this is i think is really powerful like there are brief moments where stuff gets so bad on this planet which i assume is earth but whatever stuff gets so bad that like on a normal plane it would make sense for us to team up but shinra is still shinra constantly yeah you know i this is jumping ahead but i think like the moment where sephiroth has summoned the meteor to crash into the planet and barrett even has a moment where he's like you know because tifa had has been like in a coma for for a bit barrett's explaining to her like the state of the world and he's like you know rufus i gotta say like he's brave for like trying to fight these weapons that are roaming the planet and and stop meteor and then immediately after that scarlet's like we've ordered your executions to be live on tv because <laughs> right. we just need to blame somebody for this yeah and that's like unfortunately so accurate like there's so many people yeah. in positions of power that just create scapegoats rather than actually dealing with the problem right yeah because you would think as soon as president shinra gets murdered that like that would be the moment where it's like oh yeah we're all fighting the same dude yeah right but I mean, yeah, the 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 flashback and comes out and then actually going to Nibelheim and seeing it's fine. And Cloud's like, no, no, no. Like this burned down five years ago. I was here and seeing Tifa have to like just continue to hold it in. Yeah. And talking to all these random shopkeepers who are like, what are you talking about? Like I've lived here for 10 years. I don't know who you are. Yeah. That it's is so, so unsettling cool. and it so is. effective. I yeah, that was my first time experiencing that. I had never made it that far in the game. So so getting to that point was like. I could I couldn't I couldn't believe it. I yeah. I love it. I that's yeah. Speaking I just added to the list of things I'm excited to see in the remake. Yeah, I I think um another standout in this part to me is Rocket Town. I've always really liked Rocket Town and Yeah, just, visually it's Yeah. I mean like having your dead dreams hang above a place. It is funny though. Sis like, an asshole. 
I had Sid had yeah. no idea because I the only <laughs> so stupid, but the only version of Sid I knew was as the shopkeeper in Kingdom Hearts. So like, <laughs> who is the same Sid? That's Sid yes, Highland. Yeah, I know, and I like that was the that was the only connection I had with Sid. So I mean, I I knew he was in this game, but I didn't know to what effect. I also didn't know he was going to be a party member. Yeah. Which was all shocking to me, but the most shocking thing was like, oh, he sucks. Like, why? Yeah. Why do they make him like the nice shopkeeper guy? <laughs> He's so mean. He swears more than Barrett, like yeah. immediately. Uh, I love the way this game interprets swears too. It's just a bunch of random characters. Yeah. Let's, I don't even know what they're implying you're saying here. It's just like <laughs> anger. Yeah. Um, Actually, th- this is maybe a good time to shout out um, Tim Rogers of Action Button fame, I guess. But uh, when he used to work at Kotaku, he did this really long, uh, this really long video series over at Kotaku uh, called Let's Mosey. And it's him going through and retranslating a lot of like the famous mistranslations from the original Final Fantasy VII release and actually goes in and compares the Japanese and English versions of a lot of the like swear words and finds that a lot of them actually weren't swear words in the original, which is interesting. So like, I think the one of the biggest, most famous ones is um, when when uh, Barrett's talking about like, oh, yeah, we're all just, you know, living under the crushing weight of this fucking pizza. Uh, The actual text is this uh, this rotting pizza, like like, oh, like it's decrepit it's rotting and and yet here it is looming over us which is actually really evocative and really interesting yeah uh but instead it just becomes like why are you like i, I get it they're both round but why? <laughs> i have to say that's something that i've always heard but never really realized about like this game's kind of infamous off translation and localization it's not like all the time but it's very noticeable yeah they fixed a lot of them in the in the modern releases also from what i understood but uh yeah. I, I did run into a bunch of them playing the original version there'll just be moments where like there's like someone will say i know in a way that's like that's not like i can tell maybe what the line was but it's not exactly make it doesn't make sense in this moment yeah. or like um on the shinra boat one thing that stands out is when you talk to the merchant like the dialogue option to buy things is something's missing. So it's just like, I can tell like, like logically yeah. that makes sense, but it's like, it feels like it wasn't like localized direct. It was just sort of translated maybe too directly. Yeah. Very famously the, the, I think, person or people i think it was either like it might have just been like like a guy like one guy um internally at at square needed to do it in like almost no time at all like the the turnaround on this localization was like famously like crunch culture nightmare shit so it's like miraculous it's as good as it is given those circumstances and they've gotten in and fixed a lot of them like i think i think the most famous one at least from my research is uh is Aerith saying this guy are sick yeah talking yeah. about like a guy in, in midgar that they've now fixed in the switch version and also Aerith being Aeris is a big one too oh that yeah was her right original name although i renamed her because you know you do have the ability to correct that in this game yeah which we didn't we didn't shout out with red 13 but not giving us the ability to rename red 13 nanaki or not even like they maybe even should have just forced it like whatever you name him originally maybe just change it to nanaki when you find out that that's his name yeah um, that would have been that would have been awesome honestly but if, you, if you don't do that i guess because i didn't know that this was going to happen but i guess if you don't do that the scene where they're like you're telling me that red 13's name was nanaki all along and if you named him nanaki from the beginning that's probably got to be hilarious you're telling me nanaki's name nanaki yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, i've done that and that's exactly what happens yeah, but that's, yeah I mean, that's very silly <laughs> that would that would have been that would have been cool yeah but yeah i mean this is the part of the game that i'm most curious how remake will handle i think you're right that like i don't as much as i do appreciate the effort to do like an open world and the world map in this game i think for remix 
purposes. Like there shouldn't be too much travel between the places. I, I imagine there will be like Chocobo riding and maybe some distance to overcome. Like, yeah, we've seen a lot of footage of them like walking on the world map. And if I had to guess, I think Remake Part 2 will begin in Media Res with the Comtown flashback. That just feels like a good way to oh, kick off fun. that game. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I imagine, I, I mean, not to get too into speculating about Remake and our not Remake yeah. episode, but I do, I do think just like allowing you to travel between places, right? Like having kind of a linear story taking you from from beat to beat, but also introducing you to like the Chocobo Ranch and letting you just fast travel back there whenever you want is probably the move. Yeah. I do think like one of the things I, I disliked about the remake so far is is just sort of there are just some moments where it's like this sequence didn't have to be as long or as like <laughs> uh, tedious as it as it ended up being. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there are moments in, in remake that are reminiscent of Final Fantasy 13 in the worst way. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. And it I I loved my time with that game, but I think that there's definitely a lot of room for improvement with the next chapter. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. But uh, I guess it's just sort of approach closing out this section going to the section of the game sort of the second disc the part of the game that isn't really talked about quite as much Mm. uh you know the revelations of cloud and the weapons showing up and leading into the finale yeah i love to hear your thoughts on this because i think this is like the part of the game you probably had no knowledge of at all oh that's it when i when i'm talking about like this this middle bit i'm talking about all that like post midgar stuff in general oh okay Um, because this to me feels like the railroad to the end like once once i got into disc two that was like like I was on the fast track. Oh to my god! The game. So longtime listeners will know that for the longest time you didn't know that Aerith died. Yeah, uh, and it was unfortunately spoiled for you. It was spoiled for me in '98 or '99 yeah. before I played it, and it was like that was like the like. Did you know she dies? That like everyone said that because this was a time where like killing off a major character in a game in general was a big move, right? Yeah. Never mind, like, one of the immediately most beloved characters in the cast. Yeah. Like, knowing that that was going to happen, but experiencing it for the first time, how did that scene play out for you? Uh, still really heavy. Like, yeah. I, like, like knowing it was coming didn't didn't detract from the weight of it at all. I, I still wish I didn't know before yeah. it had happened. Um, but uh, yeah, I, the big thing I think ever our, our uh, leading up to the remake was specifically, like, keep Brendan in the dark. Don't let him find out what yeah. happened. And... and uh, someone someone i follow on twitter just like retweeted some art some like fan art of her fucking dead and i was like okay cool uh which was such a bummer um and then that ended up not even having it happening in remake i guess like they didn't because it's just the midgar section like you don't even get to that bit so it didn't even matter i guess but yeah yeah no knowing it was going to happen definitely like took a little bit of the edge off but um the animation of it i think is really pretty wild but the other thing that i didn't know because I just knew that she died. I didn't know how, you know, like I, I knew that she was going to. I kind of knew like where to because I, I had seen the image of Cloud like holding her yeah. in the water. There's the sequence right before Sephiroth like drops down with his sword where Cloud is the one holding the sword over. Her. And, yeah. and no matter what button you press, it doesn't help. It only makes things worse because Sephiroth is controlling Cloud's brain, essentially, and his actions. Um, and I was like, oh, my God, does Cloud kill? Like, yes, Sephiroth kills Aerith, obviously, by like controlling Cloud. But I was like, is Cloud the one who kills Aerith? I had no idea uh, how yeah. that was going to play out. So so there's even that moment right before where, like, you finish the Temple of the Ancients and it's yeah. Cloud is being controlled by Sephiroth to give him the black materia. Right. And then Aerith tries to stop him and he just starts hitting her. It's yeah. like really like. Like that that is a moment where like if it wasn't the playmobile 
models, I would think it would be too much. Cause like, yeah, there's, there's a feeling there of like, I don't know. It's just, that was very disturbing. That's also where Kate Seth two shows up. I'm like, dude, what the hell? This like horrible scene of yeah. violence is happening. And then it's like, Hey, I'm Kate Seth two. Yeah. But I mean, this is the beginning of cloud questioning. Like how much control does Sephiroth have over me? What is this part of me that I don't understand? And, you know, to me, that is like the beginning of the game, really exploring Cloud's struggle with his own mental health Mm -hmm, and like mm -hmm. his own identity, which is honestly really well done. And I mean, I love the moment where like he wakes up from that and Barrett and Tifa are there. And like there's this awkwardness in the room where like they want to be there for him, but they kind of have to be like tough love about it. Or Barrett's like, we all have problems, man, but like we've got to keep going. Like we can't. And there's even moments where like, you know, when cloud is like fully removed from the party and is like in a coma, Barrett even says like, do we really want him back? Like, is he the guy that we knew? Like, mm-hmm. is he just the shadow of Sephiroth? Like, right. It's a safety concern. Yeah. Right. That goes back to like, do we try anyway? Or do we just give up on this guy? Yeah. And you know, Tifa also leaving the party to just be at his side for all of that. That that's a really, I mean like the, the triple whammy, it's pretty close to each other. Like Aerith dying, cloud leaving the party and Tifa like all happens yeah. pretty close to one another. Yeah. And I, I hope that remake does that. Cause I think it's like, I think they can afford to do it in a different way. And they've already shown an interest in letting the player like not always be cloud. There, there are sequences where you're not just cloud. But I, I think that that moment of cloud in Medeal and Tifa helping him in the live stream to like find his identity and seeing what who he actually was and what he did. That's like my favorite part of the game. I, I really love that sequence. Yeah, it's awesome. I was really surprised. That, that it yeah. played out essentially just as like a big fucking cutscene. Like I, I, th- I thought, I thought that it was really well done. Um, I think like visually is stunning. Um, I, I love the way this game looks. I know, I know it like gets some flack sometimes, but I, I think this like technologically speaking, them saying, Hey, we're going to have these pre-rendered backgrounds and have these, you know, figures walking on top of them works more than it doesn't. And, and specifically their ability to use those limitations to have a video cutscene play directly into gameplay and vice versa in this sequence specifically, they're doing a lot of like the opposite, like, cause I, I think famously this game opens with like the, the shot of Midgar and kind of you zoom down into the train and then immediately it like jumps to cloud jumping off the train. Then you're playing this sequence where you're in the light stream with tifa is almost the opposite of that where it's like you start doing something and then it jumps into a cutscene, and you're like oh shit i'm not doing anything anymore i'm just i'm just along for the ride at this point um is really cool yeah i love i love the pivots to setting the scene as you recall them yeah because i think this game also does a great thing where like you see that beat play out several times Mm -hmm. so like you actually have a pretty firm memory of it yourself and tifa has this great line where she's like she's like memory is on a singular level like our you know like if it's only like we can discover what our memories are together if we can both recall it but like yeah you know and trying to figure out like what is your version of the truth what is mine and i think i think what really makes the sequence play out well is tifa also has some stuff she has buried right you know like the fact that they weren't really childhood friends cloud was this awkward boy who really wanted to fit in and couldn't yeah and then tried to like even that sequence where they're like making that promise to each other at the well tifa's like i was surprised you asked me there because we never really talked yeah. like, <laughs> <you know? laughs> and like 
really like the the game dissecting its own iconic moments to be like these were actually grandiose memories of what really happened Mm -hmm. but at the same time what those characters realize is like cloud learns that yeah he wasn't he wasn't the chosen hero he wasn't strong enough to join soldier he was a nameless grunt who who got sick in the back of the truck who got sick in the back of the truck, but he was still heroic. He still came back to save Tifa. Yeah. And Tifa also, I do think, fell in love with that cloud. And I think that's why she has been so like tied to helping this guy. She's like, I know that I know this isn't bullshit. There is there is a version of Cloud mm-hmm. that I know is at least my childhood friend. Yeah. And, you know, I I think there are <laughs> the game is like fairly hands off with like who you think is in love with who. And that has led to many different ships and ideas of like, what is the canon thing? But I, I actually like that the game has that hands off approach. Cause I think it makes the relationships feel more nuanced than like, you know, concretely one thing. I guess, I guess until disc three, right? Right. Right before the, the ending where I think they kind of like codify it a little bit more as it's, it's Tifa and cloud. Right. I mean, I think like in real life, there are moments in our lives where someone means something different to us, you Mm, know, and I think like I think Cloud and Tifa just realize like we've always been here for each other. We've been through everything together. Like this just makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) And Aerith, I think, was the person. Aerith is like the person you like in high school when you're learning what having a crush even is, you know, where it's like. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And and I think there's a lot to be said about I I know that there are people out there who decry Aerith specifically as maybe like a misogynistic take when it comes to writing women in video games. Like I've, I've seen that written before and sure. I, I get where that's coming from. I do think, you know, writing her essentially as like literally the death of innocence is a little bit on the nose, uh, especially when it happened was like when it clicked for me for real. But as we were talking about, I think she's like a really like mostly well-written and well-rounded character. And I think she's really interesting. And I think you're right that like it's it's not just the death of innocence like fully. I think it is also this understanding that you know coming of age is like oh yeah tifa is like having a relationship as an adult really you know it's like you're there for each other and that's actually where the relationship comes in you know it's it's not just kind of this like flirty back and forth yeah exactly it's it's like oh it's it's in people's actions that relationships form you know which i think is i think it's important and and kind of beautiful I've always rooted for Tifa. I feel like there are weird <laughs> Ebonine parallels, and I feel like I've always been an Ebonine <laughs> fan as well. From Le- it all goes back to Les Mis for me. Of course, I understand that critique of Aerith, especially in the original, and like, yeah, way too often there are tropes of like killing off women or having women suffer to motivate male characters. Right. I would argue though, Aerith is is done better here because I think like it's something the player goes through as well. Like we yes. genuinely like Aerith. She's more than just an idea of someone like we know her personality. I think the fact that she's so weird and kind of like in the clouds all the time and like has a identity that is atypical of like the healer in a final fantasy game mm-hmm. makes her feel fully realized. And having that spot in the inventory, just blank for the rest of the game. Like it really, yeah. it really does capture what grief is like where like the first feeling is just disbelief and then you just have to carry on there's so much of the game without her and she doesn't really even get mentioned until the very end like everyone just sort of like gets distracted by other things you know yeah like totally i think um we we haven't said it directly but it's it's definitely worth touching on hironobu sakaguchi who i've already mentioned kind of like one of the lead scenario writers for this game this game entered production right when his mother passed away um and he was like i 
this is the video game. Like that's really like what he wanted to impart into the game was this idea of grief and like how he was feeling at the time. And, and he's gone on record back and forth the saying like, maybe it wasn't the right move, but I'm glad I did it anyway. And I, I I'm glad he did it too. I, th- I, th- I think, I think he does a really good job of, of, of yeah. imparting this game with that kind of feeling um, and creating a character that's so lovable, having them taken away from you. And I think you're right. Having, having that blank spot in the menu in particular is like really important for just kind of, imparting onto the player the feeling that that the loss of a loved one can impart onto you you know it does it does feel like there's a little piece of you that's missing you know but the ways in which they've impacted you and the ways in which they've they've driven you and made you a better person is what endures and i think that's kind of what this game is trying to get at yeah there's such a focus on sort of spirituality of the afterlife and sort of the life stream and returning to the planet and like what that kind of means to the people who have lost somebody right because it's also like she's not the only loss and like she's the big one that like has stuck with people's memories forever but like there's avalanche in the very beginning you know with barrett like mourning them so Uh, brutal yeah it's constantly there's constant loss in this game even like while he does come back like seeing cloud like kind of mute in the hospital in Medeal is also like I mean you know that's 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 something that a lot of people have gone through like you you may maybe they're not dead but you've lost them in a different way yeah or just feeling like you can't connect to somebody like there's this for so much of the game there's this like wall between Cloud and Tifa that she's constantly trying to break down but like is afraid to to touch yeah you know and like I just think like uh, I definitely understand and, and appreciate that critique of Aerith. But I also think that's where the remake has even like gone further in a better direction. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a little nervous at first because when she first shows up, she's a little bit like, let's keep on trucking. And I'm like, oh, no, this feels a little bit weird. But like she like has so many show stopping moments in that game that like by the end, I was like, that's that's Aerith. Like that is exactly how she should be. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so with you. I guess that takes us into the finale, right? Yeah. So, I mean, what I like about this game, too, and this is where I, I I do appreciate the open world more, is like the third disc is basically like, OK, you now have the airship and the submarine. You can go anywhere. You can go to Gold Saucer <laughs> and just chill. There's a meteor in the sky pretty close, <laughs> but you can take up several hobbies um, yeah. and explore places and, and i like this is that, when like, it becomes fallout 4 for me because i i was so uninterested in doing anything except getting to the end of the story i like getting everyone's ultimate weapon and everyone's ultimate limit break mm-hmm. and kind of building everyone up i when i was a kid was obsessed with chocobo racing and breeding <laughs> and always yeah. always got the golden chocobo yeah because it's pokemon because exa- yes exactly right yeah. um but now I, I i like i like that the game gives you the option and honestly sephiroth is hard but doable that like you could go right to him and be all right Mm -hmm. you could also make it like you win in one hit um or you can find a nice middle ground and that's what i usually like doing i like taking that beat of the journey to be like i want everyone to be their best self i want to like savor this and then go to the finale and honestly i didn't get here until i was 13 and i remember like somehow i I mean, this is like early days of the internet. So, you know, there wasn't really social media yet. Mm -hmm. So it was easier to avoid spoilers. So I hadn't heard One Winged Angel. I hadn't seen the fight. I had the strategy guide. Yeah. I knew you fight Sephiroth in the end. That's pretty obvious for most of the game. But seeing him as this angelic deity in the clouds and then hearing One Winged Angel begin was genuinely terrifying. Yeah. It still is. It's (laughs) when he blows up the sun. 
<laughs> Fighting Sephiroth in the original FF7 is kind of like the same feeling when I watched 2001 A Space Odyssey and her, they're like, bum, 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 mm-hmm. bum. I'm like, oh, that's what this is from. Right. Like, this has become so iconic that, like, it's almost a joke. Yeah. Like, I, I think I first saw that in, like, Tiny Tunes before I saw <laughs> it in 2001. And One Winged Angel, I mean, that is, you know, it, it, it has kind of become a meme, basically. But it is such a good theme. And it's also so shocking to hear voices because there's no yeah. voice in this game other than like the I was actually really of- surprised I I had no it, that's kind of what I was talking about where I was like oh that's why this game needs to be three discs it's like oh you have like an actual mp3 file with like real voices on here it's like yeah. the very few times in the Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis era where they would say like yeah some of the 14 bits we have for this cartridge is going to be devoted to one guy going yeah dude you know I'm like <laughs> oh and that and then they had to cut like their their graphical fidelity back uh to fit that voice going yeah dude in there yeah i hearing the choir and like shocking yeah the summon you mentioned where like he it, it destroys every planet is so funny yeah and so good and man this is this is the fight this fight is so good it has ruined every other final fantasy because they <laughs> every final fantasy needs to have a final encounter like this mm-hmm. and so rarely is it earned in the same way yeah even outside of Final Fantasy, it reminds me so much of the ending of Kingdom Hearts 1, where it's so clear that they wanted that to be Sephiroth. Yes. And it yeah. is so not Sephiroth. <laughs> Ansem. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it's just so cool. I, I love this fight so much. And I think what's really nice is like the game, like the story kind of ends before, like everyone, like Cloud is a new person. Mm-hmm. He has reconnected with Tifa. And with all his friends, all I love that bit where he's like, everyone go and take a day and and come back and like figure out why you're doing this. That's not just I want to kill Sephiroth. Like you need a personal reason to want to do this. And and that's where going back to Barrett's whole journey is like he it's not for revenge. It's it's for his daughter and for his friends. And seeing everyone come to that conclusion i mean i love the yuffie reveal as well where like they're like is she back and everyone's like no there's no way she was always <laughs> sick she had the thinnest motivation of anyone and then she falls from the sky and goes like like yeah. i'm back it's it's so good yeah i'm gonna steal the biggest materia there is <laughs> yeah <laughs> i also love in her side quest in the battle tower when she fights her dad mm-hmm. and she has this like great speech about like what has become of Utai and what it should be and inspires her dad to do better. And then when everyone leaves the room, she's yeah. her dad pulls her aside and is like, you're going to take all their material when this is all over though, right? They don't need it yeah. once they save the world. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, don't worry. It's such a good bit. I hope they commit to, I, I'm, I'm very glad Yuffie is much more fleshed out in the remake, Yeah, but it, it's fun to have a wild card in that way. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean the, the finale with Sephiroth and, and I love to whether or not you've unlocked Cloud's final limit break, Omni Slash, you get it i always interpret it and i'm open i I would love to hear what you thought of this but i always read the final encounter with sephiroth as like this game that is all about people struggling with idolized versions of themselves or others Mm. we are fighting sephiroth's like dream of himself like we this is like he wants to be god and i don't i didn't read it as like i don't know like where we actually are in that fight it almost felt more metaphorical than anything to me i kind of read it as like you're fighting sephiroth in the life stream a little bit yeah Um, yeah that that was a little bit my read but there's also a a, a kind of separate read of sephiroth that i have because 
I don't I don't think this is literalized really, but it was at least one of my takeaways. And I wanted to ask you about this to know like if this is really confirmed or denied in any way. But, you know, Sephiroth spends a lot of the early parts of this game or like the first, I don't know, two thirds of this game, I guess, like controlling Cloud, essentially, like a, like yeah. a Voldemort and Harry Potter situation, like literally controlling his body uh, in a lot of instances and, and, and fucking with his brain. Um, and it occurred to me at a certain point is like, oh, OK, so Cloud is a little bit a child of Genova in the same way that Sephiroth is. But Sephiroth is like really directly like kind of cloned from Genova cells and Genova being this this alien thing from outer space. I it feels to me like a lot of the game is Genova also controlling Sephiroth in the same way. And I yeah. and I I don't know if that's literalized really anywhere. Maybe it's an advent children. <laughs> but um to me it really felt like Genova is actually pulling all the strings here and kind of tr- like Lavos almost. Yeah, and, and yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and the reunion idea is literally Genova like pulling all of its strings back into itself because it knows that it needs the black materia to like escape and thrive and become itself again. And I I saw Sephiroth becoming what he becomes at the end of the game, him being like, I am the fucking man. I'm the hero. I am the strongest thing there ever is. And I've recognized that this thing is controlling me and I've overcome even that. So now I deserve to become that for everyone else. Yeah. Was, kind of Mass Effect-y as well. Yeah. Was, that, was, yeah. that was kind of my takeaway because I, I was very much of the like, I think eventually the reveal is going to be that Sephiroth is being controlled by Genova and that kind of didn't happen. So I don't know. I needed to fit it into my little my little headcanon. <laughs> I, I, again, I think like all of these characters are deconstructions of ideas. Yeah. So I think Sephiroth as the big villain is also like, I like that read, honestly. I don't know if it's ever explicitly said, but I think that makes sense given that Genova is also kind of sometimes in a fictional world, there's sort of like the blanket explanation for things. Yeah. It's like in fallout, it's, Oh, it was radiation. Like that's like the magic yeah. of this world. And in here it's just uh, Genova cells, whatever, you know, you got, yeah. And I, I like that cloud is essentially like, what if captain America's like super soldier injection didn't work? You know, <laughs> like he was this like little nerd that wanted to be captain America and like totally yeah. did not work. Right. And it's abomination and the Hulk in a way yeah yeah that that makes cloud's eventual role as a hero so powerful and and i might be reading too much into this but i also think the whole materia system the fact that like even the player has control of who these characters are in some way like further intertwines with this like again like positive spin of existentialism where it's like yes some characters are better suited for certain things but ultimately what they can do is up to the player Mm. and cloud even though he's not the person he claimed to be he has still become someone other people rely on without even realizing it yeah And once he chooses to really embrace that, which kind of it's sort of similar to like his relationship with Tifa, where it's like there's sort of an elephant in the room where it's like there some things are just kind of already there (laughs) and it's up to you to recognize that and like embrace that. It's like, okay, like Midgar is not what life should be like so Mm -hmm, like that mm -hmm. there's an opportunity here to rebel and the same thing for like I am not the person I say I am rather than clinging to a lie. I can embrace who I choose to be. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. And we, we're going to talk about the material system in the question section, <laughs> um, but I'll just, I'll, I guess I'll just wrap this up this part, at least by saying I, I, I like the ending. I know some people find it too abrupt. I thought it was kind of exhilarating when the 500 years later text showed up on screen. Yes. I was like, hell yeah. Are Red you 13 me? puppies. Red yeah. 13 and his children and uh, a world covered in flora and fauna. 
uh, was was great. I mean, you win. It's nice. I love the. I mean, I love seeing the and characters Aerith also. Yeah, yeah. And that's also how the game begins, which is a nice. Yeah, like everything kind of comes full circle. I, I think specifically just this idea that like you you do this big fight and then it ends and you're like, oh shit, we're actually too late. Like we spent so much time fighting Sephiroth that it actually didn't work. I love that Sid is smoking a cigarette already. Yes. But when you like the camera like whip pans over to Sid and Barrett uh, and I think Tifa like sitting up on the ledge um, and Sid is already just like sitting there puffing away. I was like, yeah, that's what I would be doing too in that moment, my guy. <laughs> um, but yeah, seeing yeah. the light stream rejects. <laughs> lady luck don't fail me now it comes crashing into the yeah. <laughs> so funny <laughs> it is it is great that there's like some last minute like indiana jones stuff like right before yeah. the reveal of like life stream rejecting meteor and then mm-hmm. the flash of Aerith's face because what i like too is like Aerith obviously was responsible for the opposing force to help save the planet but like it was kind of everyone it was like the will of everyone combined Mm -hmm. you know and i think that like there isn't really a chosen one in this story yeah even the villains like there there are ideas and and concepts that are controlling other people i i think it's really nice to end just with like that quick shot of like what's happening, the characters, and then Aerith. Uh, it reminds me of uh, in the documentary um, Kingdom of Dreams and Madness, which we talk about a lot on the show. Uh, it's the Studio Ghibli documentary about the making. It's an of- all-time documentary. It's incredible. Yeah. It's largely about the making of Wind Rises. Which is also my favorite Ghibli movie, which is maybe one of the reasons I like that documentary so much. Yeah. <laughs> Similar to Sid Highwind, Miyazaki constantly chain smoking and he's like drawing. Yeah. And someone asked him like, like at the end of Kiki's delivery service, like why doesn't Gigi like, you know, say anything? And he was like, what would they say? Like <laughs> they understand each other. That's all that matters. Yeah. You know, like any any words would be meaningless right and he's like i don't know what he said i don't know what art means how could any and like, of course like then it turns into like how could anyone know what art means like anime is a waste of time or like, you know whatever but yeah. uh i think that kind of applies to this where it's like there's restraint in the ending of just like giving you that like little goodbye mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. recognizing that like whether or not people are here the impact is lasting you know and i think that's kind of the message of the game is like whether you try to do something and fail or succeed or your life is cut short or not, like it did have an impact and it like ultimately is what creates the planet to be a place worth living on. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a beautiful message. I, this is, uh, I'm glad we're recording this in this order, but uh, as I mentioned, Advent Children takes place after this game. <laughs> And before the 500 years later title card. And I am oh, good. so nervous about what's going on there because, yeah. th- I mean, the last shots of Midgar you see are it getting like absolutely ravaged by essentially like they're, I think they're, de- they're depicted as like these big kind of like red, like supercell twister kind of situations, but they're really like the tendrils of Meteor kind of like reaching down and like grabbing Midgar to like fuck it up. But that place gets like ruined really in in that little bit before before the life stream comes to life and Aerith's prayer works out like midgar gets rocked and i'm really curious to see if advent children is even remotely interested in engaging with that if i recall correctly the response to advent children was not super great so i am curious to see what, what that game uh, is all about in terms of deciding to continuing that story i've heard from other fans of the series that like it's it's fun but i don't think anyone i don't know of anyone who thinks of it 
narratively the same way as this game. Right. And I mean, I am very open to being pleasantly surprised tomorrow. And uh, (laughs) there's a chance you already know how I feel about it. I'm kind of going in expecting it to be kind of just like fan service. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I'm going to see my friends kick ass and that's going to be fun. But yeah, I mean, I don't as much spin off stuff as this game has gotten it doesn't really call for a sequel at all i was literally just about to say that yes yeah it's it and again like i said earlier like it does call for prequels and like it's such a rich world that like i understand and also sold well and was well received and was a pop culture (laughs) phenomena right i understand why there's spinoff material and like there's more to play in in this world Mm -hmm. i mean there's so many like the world map we talked about you get this sampler platter of settings that all could have been like much longer than they were so like i think the game does invite you to keep thinking about it and to like imagine what else could be there but yeah in terms of like what comes next like even getting that nice little epilogue was like a treat like we didn't even need the red 13 puppies yeah but like that was nice to get because i'm like okay like the world looks like a better place mm. or at least it looks kind of horizon zero donnie with more red 13s which is <laughs> probably good probably for the best if i were to guess probably good yeah um i liked it <laughs> It's like a pretty, pretty good video game. <laughs> Rude was cool. I like when he does the weird fist pump. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't we take a break and move on to questions? That sounds great. Let's do that. Cool. Talk to you soon. Goodbye. back if you can believe it uh we got a bunch of questions from you all dear listeners thank you so much for for submitting these questions we're gonna just we're gonna just go hit them but uh first of all i just want to say thanks everybody who's been listening all year while we've been covering the best games of all time i don't think uh, the two things that i want to reiterate number one i don't think we're done talking about final fantasy 7 i think like this will continue and kind of like i feel like chrono trigger was kind of like a at least for me as soon as we had played that game and talked about it, it was like, oh, this is going to be a, a, a touch point for me forever. And then Elden Ring similarly was like, oh, yeah, when, once we were done playing and talking about Elden Ring was like, we're going to be talking about Elden Ring pretty much consistently, maybe yeah. forever. <laughs> um, and I think Final Fantasy VII will. It was already in your lexicon, but now it's in mine and I'm glad to have that. Yeah. Um, very so I think that on that. one hand and on the other hand, we're not all we're not done talking about games that are probably considered the best of all time um i just think at least going into next year it's not the focus as much as it was this year like i yeah i I think having moments where like you and i last year were like tales of arise is just a game we need to talk about i would not even (laughs) remotely call that one of the best games of all time but it was a game that had so many interesting and big and cool ideas and our 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 friend eric uh also big fan of that of that franchise so it was like nice to kind of wrap all that up yeah Um, and i kind of want to get more into doing that kind of like impromptu hey this game has really grabbed us we want to talk about it next year yeah like i said there there are overall like there's a lot of different incentives going into bonus episodes sometimes yeah. it can be like this is a huge gem of game history that we want to explore and then other times it's like this is just what's in the moment and that's a debase it for that but you know there's yeah multiple angles to come at it from yeah totally um i just think it's always nice to have a project <laughs> <laughs> yeah but uh i still have my guide i know where you live so i may show up with it now that you're fully onboarded as a fan okay 
I do think actually that's 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 uh one of the questions. Maybe I'll just start with this one just because it's sure. it the most apt. Love it. Love a segue. Um, this one's from from Humble Goat, friend of the show on Tumblr, which uh, we're on Tumblr now. Yeah, Tumblr.com slash into the cast. Uh, probably not gonna be tweeting as much. I'm like done with Twitter officially as of like the week that we're recording this. Yeah, I still so. have mine. I'll probably still like promote stuff on it, but I I don't feel the need to be like present there as much really. Yeah. I'm like out, out. Yeah. Anyway, humble goat on Tumblr ass. Uh, might be something you're already touching on, and we're we're about to. But would love to hear thoughts about the modern experience with gameplay and progression versus the past experience when game manuals had the information that in-game tutorials did not. It's fascinating to me that there's a whole layer of instruction stripped away, giving it and many games of this era the appearance of inscrutability, often to the detriment of all parties involved. This is a great time to bring up the fact that you still have your strategy guide, uh, but also a great time to bring up that like you and i talk a lot about the idea of of taking games of previous eras and pouring them forward and continuing like game preservation and game history and that's all really well and good and the thing that is lost in translation there is always the manuals these games all came with manuals and when you bought a game from eb games or kb toys or toys r us or wherever you were buying games from in the 90s or early 2000s you would sit in the back of the car and you would read the manual on your way home like that that was such a part of the game buying experience at least for me i was like completely obsessed with like reading everything there was to know about a game before playing it and those kinds of things aren't present anymore in games especially when you're buying them digitally and that's i think why there's been you know a rise of tutorialization in video games for the most part um sometimes you know there are obviously outliers super mario brothers for example great example of how they teach you in game without needing to have a you know a whole lot of on-screen text telling you that the button lets you jump but this game i imagine having the guide having the instruction manual that came in the box of the game was like probably pretty important at least for like even understanding how material works because i i needed to like look up kind of how material worked uh to to really wrap my head around it for this game i think for this game the instruction manual was more like flavor than anything it would be like here's Mm. cloud's blood type it's like okay i didn't really need to know that but uh (laughs) cool or you know like it'd be like little character bios and then like maybe like a little bit of info on the first mission yeah uh it's worth noting that that blood type uh in other parts of the world is considered essentially like um like horoscopes oh that makes sense got it so people would be like what's your blood type as like are we compatible to date i just need to know i want to know blood type is a b i had a feeling yeah I had a feeling. I do Just know that on the vibe. Yeah. Barrett is a Sagittarius because the Square Enix account was like, happy birthday, Barrett, like somewhat recently. And I was like, oh, there we go. That makes sense. Anyway, but the guide, I mean, like you would not be able to do some of the side stuff in this game without yeah. the guide. Yeah. Unless you pushed every barrel incorrectly uh, by accident. Yeah. I, I think that <laughs> there there is some design that was meant to like, I imagine this is a game that the developers wanted people to talk about and compare experiences. And Mm, there are little moments of the story where like you can't influence the outcome. Like the gold saucer date, while it's kind of a silly moment, like that was kind of a novel idea that like the game was keeping this hidden tally the whole time. Yeah. And then, you know, whatever character you liked the most would drag you out on a gold saucer day and it's a funny little moment very chrono trigger but in that case it's a it's a court case (laughs) yeah (laughs) 
Look, if you're if you're listening to this and you love Final Fantasy VII and you haven't played Chrono Trigger yet, I don't know how many of you there are out there, but go play Chrono Trigger. Play it on the Nintendo DS. Have a great they time. They are very similar games. They're it, contemporaries. Yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah. I think that they're both going after similar ideas. I think that... Uh, yeah. I was actually curious. that I didn't want to pit them against each other, but just because we began the year with Chrono Trigger and are mm. ending it with FF7, like, do you have a preference for one over the other? Like, what, what would you say the uniting agent is with both games? I would I would have never believed it if you if you had told me that that I would feel this way after all of this. But Chrono Trigger definitely. Yeah, yeah. Chrono Trigger is really the one because the go back and listen to our episode about Chrono Trigger. But I'm going to reiterate a little bit of it here. It's it's actually worth mentioning even before I get into that. A lot of the team that made this game also made Chrono Trigger. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap. You know, I, as I mentioned, they brought in like a lot of new blood, but that was like for the technology. That was like for literally like okay, 3D models. How do they work? Let's figure it out. Um, but a lot of the creative team that worked on on this game uh, was coming hot off the heels of finishing work on Chrono Trigger. This was like the next game they yeah. worked on after that, which is wild to think that those two were back to back, especially if you look at them next to each other. It's like, what are you talking about? But Chrono Trigger solves so many problems I have with the genre and its length and the ways in which it handles the ATB meter, like active active time battles. I like love the combat in Chrono Trigger. I love, as I mentioned already, the open world and the ways in which it reacts to traveling through time. I love that party so much. Like I, I really, I love that game. Um, I found it so constantly surprising and so streamlined and so interesting where this game has that one beat definitely is just like theme like overall ideas that it's tackling I think are much stronger Chrono Trigger is very much and it was intended to be especially with the the um, Yuji Horii who created Dragon Quest kind of of it all it was intended to be kind of a, a bedtime story in a way it was intended to be a fairy tale and and it achieves that definitely and this game is much more like yes we're establishing Final Fantasy as like a grounded and serious thing. Chrono Trigger is if I if I it's actually that's an impossible choice for me but I think they both excel in their own areas. I agree though like as a game I think Chrono Trigger just overall is is tighter like it's got this timeless presentation everything about it is good basically yeah, <laughs> like yeah. on, on a on, on like graphics gameplay sound level but I think FF7 is great because of all its shortcomings as well like that is the identity mm. of the game is just ambition in some ways yeah. and like this sort of awkward polygons of it and the weird mini games of it like do like even if they're not necessarily fun or good additions they do add to the experience of the time i, th- I think there's also an element of like chrono trigger does feel like it was you know called the dream team it was this sort of combination right. of like what makes dragon quest good and what makes final fantasy good and like do both <laughs> like it really does feel like if you had to like communicate through game design what makes these two franchises like behemoths in the genre that right. game kind of explains both sides of it very well mm-hmm. it's also kind of interesting to like know how much talent was in both games and how much toriyama and namora influenced the tone of the game through their art and the yeah. character designs because that's like the major difference really is just the look of it you mm-hmm. know and and the what that inspires like out of seven is trying to be a little grittier a little bit more human and chrono trigger has plenty of bleak moments like is more of like a epic fantasy 
They're they're both good. I know it's a hot take, but I like both. Of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're both. I mean, again, we're talking about the greatest games of all time. Yeah, <laughs> uh, they're both good games. I think now there's definitely kind of a romantic longing for the manual and for guides, and I know there's a lot of like really great like fan made or like like I have um there was a limited edition physical release of Celeste that came with a little manual that like doesn't really serve a purpose, but it's just nice to have, and it's like yeah, it almost feels like the video game equivalent of getting something on vinyl where it's. Like, yeah, I have the I have the instruction manual, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think in general, it's probably better that games have learned how to instruct players through the game itself. But yeah. there's so many ways to do that. And people learn in different ways. And like, there really isn't like one way to do that. I honestly am getting a little bit sick of the AAA style of it, though. Like playing older games like this, while there's plenty of stuff to get over, I do love that it's usually like the, the designers of the game know that your curiosity will lead you in the right direction. Mm. And I think we see that in, in modern games like Breath of the Wild and Elden Ring as applied to an open world. But even here, like learning material, while it's a little bit Excel-esque, it's also like you're going to learn by doing. Yeah. Even though Barrett does sit you down and ask Cloud to explain materia to him early on, <laughs> like the game is also giving you pretty simple materia early on. Like you're not going to yeah. get W item in the first disc, you know, <laughs> or like, you know, right. the, the idea of like linking materia to like all and stuff. I, I liked that experimentation, but it's nice that it ramps up to that. That's one of my favorite things. Yeah. Yeah. Blue, blue material. I'm a big blue materia fan, as it turns out. Uh, I also love, just while we're talking about material, I love that Kate Sith comes with Manipulate. Yes. I, that's I, so funny. That's, that was my guiding principle. I tried to build everyone to be on theme, like, for their character. Mm. So I had cloud initially was all like ice magic and bolt oh, she starts with ice and bolt so it wasn't a huge stretch but like he was kind of like just an offensive mage basically mm. um and then i slowly transitioned him to be like a more supportive unit so he, I, I gave him barrier and uh some healing spells as well barrett i had like have cover and also heal but i also gave him phoenix uh, as as his summon, which is like sort of his approach at leadership and his sort of paternal role yeah. of, of protection. Tifa, I made very, I gave her very few green materia, so mostly like death blow counter yellow and purple mostly. Mm. But I gave her time, and I also gave her um, healing materia specifically for status effects to kind of clear through the confusion. And I gave her the ribbon. There's the drawback to materia also. Which is not present in Remake. So green and red materia, which are spells and summons, will lower your HP and your physical attack, but increase your MP and magical attack and defense. It's fascinating. But yellow and purple don't. They just give you bonuses. So like, if you want a character to be a little bit more physical, like Tifa, I gave her mostly yellow and purple. But it depends on the characters. Do you think that's like a a mechanic interpretation of getting Mako poisoning? I I kind of always felt that way, yeah. I also think it's it's a nice way to have it be a double-edged sword so like like cloud you can kind of load up with whatever and he's still going to be the best one of the party yeah um but like you know if you if you load up barrett or tifa with materia they're going to play differently than than maybe they were sort of thought of as playing yeah Um, i I played the characters pretty straight 
this time around. I, I think I would probably get a little bit more interesting in future playthroughs. Uh, I it was kind of like the Elden Ring thing where it's like, oh, you play through it once and you start to have ideas for how you're going to do it the next time. I, I feel like the remake version of the Materia system allowed for more creative interpretation, for me at least, um, right off the bat. Like, I, I felt like I was I was encouraged to experiment more in remake than i was in the original uh personally and i think it was mainly because i was like trying to wrap my head around it in the original and in remake i i feel like i kind of got it so quickly that i was immediately like i want to sit here in menus and and figure all this stuff out if there's a fault of the original material system it's that they don't give you they almost give you too few options for too long. Like it's just sort of like spells and summons until suddenly you're getting like all and two times cut and like, you know, all these really cool abilities you can link together. Like I I made Yuffie, I gave her enemy skill. So she's always kind of stealing like stuff from the enemy. And I also gave her NP absorb to healing. So even when she's healing you, she's getting something out of it. Cool. Uh, Yeah. So anyway, to go back to your question, uh, I, I think that... <laughs> We've actually answered like three other people's questions yeah, in the yeah. process of this first one, which is funny. I, I think that um, <laughs> manuals and guides can be really cool. And, and there's some really great stuff like the fan-made Mother 3 guide where like... Oh, it's so cool. Yeah. I have now come to appreciate games being comfortable with you not seeing everything. I like God of War Ragnarok, but that really has been the game that made me realize like what is lost when you tell me everything and mm-hmm. everything I can do all at once, like constantly. I think there is power in being like, oh, did you see this? Like, did you like, did you know you could do this? Like, that is great. Like, it shouldn't be, it's a delicate balance because you don't want it to be like so easy to miss that no one knows. Like, there is literally a side quest in FF9 that wasn't known of until 2013 uh because like no one thought to do it and that's maybe too esoteric but that's cool what game comes to mind with this instruction manual question is super metroid where like that game has instructions that you kind of need if you aren't familiar with metroid where it's like these doors take x missiles to open yeah so i don't know i i think uh i think in terms of porting games forward and game preservation like that knowledge thankfully is preserved just like in the internet but i do wonder if there's a way to like include like some pdf of a manual yeah i think just surfacing it in any way would be nice yeah and i i just to be clear i i agree with you about some of the more modern stuff i think like you know even even the last of us 2 opening up with with having you do the snowball fight as a way to teach you like how you're gonna fire your gun and reload against zombies later is like you know troubling but at least it's a more creative interpretation of tutorialization than than uh, i think what i brought up recently on the show with dragon ball z kakarot where it's just like here's a huge picture of the controller and what every button does in every circumstance and then you never get to see it again uh and then you just have to go fight piccolo i, yeah. I think i think there's got to be a halfway point here exactly and uh in, in the case of older games like this like bringing them into modern into modern context I, I think having some way for people to get that stuff would be nice my thing though is that as much as i want to preserve these games i also th- like there's a lot as you mentioned there's a bunch of like weird fun silly lore and like cool nomura art in in that in that instruction manual right and i'd like to see that 
You know, yeah. I'd like to have a way to access that. That's not like, you know, archive.org PDF backup that somebody thankfully did in the year 2001. <laughs> um, I, I, I would like some way of Square Enix being like, this is important to us also, because um, I think it is. I spent so much time as a kid reading because I, I had the PlayStation was at my dad's house. So I actually only got to play every other weekend. So part of my reason for getting the guide was just like to be thinking about it when I wasn't there mm-hmm. <laughs> and like reading the character biographies <laughs> and seeing like there was like a couple paragraphs about each character and then a list of all their limit breaks and what they did. Yeah, I, I, I ate that stuff up. I loved it. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. In the process of answering that question, we also answered uh, Kyle Labriola's question, which is, if you could change anything about the materia system, what would you change? Also, did you like the materia system in Final Fantasy VII Remake? We've kind of gone over all that. I just wanted to touch on it again in case you had any any follow-up thoughts there. Yeah, I guess I, I just wish that some of the cooler options were earlier. And I also wish that the enemy difficulty... There is definitely, like, the game is fairly easy until around the temple of the ancients part of it there's definitely like a noticeable spike in how excited are you to see the temple of the agents in oh remake? my god it's gonna be so good that that was of all the things that i experienced in this game that was one that was like this is gonna look so fucking cool it's gonna be so good and <laughs> oh man sorry uh, sorry off the rails oh i guess i guess we're in remake spoilers now but i think the the big thing with remake part two is that now that fate is gone uh we don't know if Aerith has to die like that has been kind of removed so i kind of hope she doesn't because i think there's a big opportunity with the creative approach the remake is taking as like not a rewriting but like a almost like what if we could do it all again three hopes kind of angle yeah it's a game it's a game in conversation with its own legacy right yeah it it, it knows it knows uh the the public idea of final fantasy 7 and is actively engaging with not subverting it in like a shitty way but subverting it in that just doing the same story again wouldn't be enough to please everybody and that's literalized in ghosts that represent shitty fanboys (laughs) in that video game which is amazing when i started seeing the like black cloaked figures around the original game i was like oh shit i thought that that was just a remake and then realized that that was not that was not a one-to-one situation yeah so i i think like i would like to see Aerith and like what her presence and what her role in the story is like alive for most of the game but (laughs) uh you know i mean i i'm kind of open to see what happens and that's that's like i think the magic trick of the first part is like i'm fairly confident we're gonna have some beats of the story recreated because like there are so many iconic moments and things like fans and people working on the game who were fans growing up um like want to see and recreate like gold saucer is going to be in it you know there's no Mm -hmm. way they're not going to do gold saucer but the fact that like i don't know like zach is alive for example that's like a huge twist already um and i'm curious what zach's role in the next part is going to be i don't like need a ton of more zach because i feel like he's kind of just a plot twist in this game and i I don't like it also kind of feels like namora casting himself in some ways to me i honestly this game just primed me for the crisis core remake which i literally had zero interest in yeah until playing this game and now i'm really curious how that's gonna play out yeah i'm excited to play that and maybe i'll emerge a huge zach fan but for the time being it's it kind of feels like when in star wars like a character who was on screen for two seconds gets like a eight comics about them mm-hmm. you know like I don't, I don't need that much zach you know like make some time for the party that's already there anyway 
uh materia materia i would i would have more <laughs> options earlier on which remake has already done even even just in having a new game plus in remake yeah. and allowing you to start with the materia you had i think is like huge imagine if you could carry over all your materia in this game and go back to the beginning of the game oh, and man. start with all of it yeah I like mean, you'd have you'd have limited slots for a while but even that would still be pretty cool two times uh, did you get two times cut yeah I did. Once that there's a four times cut. Yeah, there's right? a four times cut. If you have four times cut on Cloud with his ultimate weapon, it is unbelievable. That is actually almost as broken as Knights of the Round because you're doing like <laughs> twenty thousand damage every turn just as yeah. an attack. It's incredible. That's wild. Yeah. Cast De Barrier on uh, Sephiroth and use some four times cut a few times. You're good. Yeah. Anyway, that those are my changes. Okay. <laughs> cool. This one is from. Cyclix on Twitter, uh, probably a question for Steven. I've done research, and I know the answer to this also, but I want to get your answer. Uh, Did you happen to hear playground rumors of things like being able to revive or prevent the death of a certain character, or did they affect how you played the game at any point? I appreciate uh, you not spoiling this for other people in the question. Thank you for for being subtle about it. So other than my one childhood friend who introduced me to this game, I didn't really know a lot of people who had it Like when I was really Mm. young. So right. a lot of discussions about it were were pretty significantly later in life. See, I didn't I didn't hear any of the like you could actually save Aerith. I, I just had people tell me like you know she dies right like uh, cool thanks yeah. So I I did not hear the rumors, but I was also extremely gullible, and I think we had a big section on sort of playground rumors for Pokemon Red and Blue, and that yeah. was that was where I got the bulk of that kind of stuff. Mm, yeah, yeah. What I what I learned in my research about this is that the uh, the rumors about how to save Aerith hit the internet before the game had even released in the West. So like, Oh no way already that was being, that twist was being spoiled for people. And the rumor that there was a way to prevent it was like seeded out in the world, which is uh, really wild. Um, It shows how much people love that character that like, they like refused to believe it was over. There was something similar that happened with, uh, with six as well. Yeah. There, there was a a fan petition to uh, change final fantasy 7 and release a new version that that Aerith didn't die in which uh just shows you know that that uh fandom is a prison um <laughs> and always has been gabe owen discord asks uh and this gets into a thing that we've already talked about a little bit but i want to keep going midgar has been directly referenced as having big new jersey energy it begs the question if the game opened up after midgar and the world retained that same energy and vibe uh what would the other key locations the world represent in relation to new jersey i know nothing about new jersey <laughs> just what has been referenced in the show thought this would make for a fun thought experiment I th- I think that the game does retain big New Jersey energy when you leave Midgar, which is actually one of the more surprising things for me. Yeah, I think that Comtown kind of reminds me of like northern New Jersey suburbs. Yeah, where like where we from. grew up. Yeah. Also sort of has Princeton energy, honestly, with the architecture. Oh, yeah. So and also just being in like a little suburb in proximity of a big city. Yeah. Uh, that always felt similar. Junon is West Point, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, Chocobo feel- Ranch is like, there's actually a surprising amount of farmland in New Jersey. Yeah. So I would say Chocobo Ranch is represented. Or people would argue for or against the existence of Central Jersey, but that's definitely Chocobo Ranch. Yeah, Chocobo Ranch is the arguable Central Jersey. <laughs> yeah. 
And then I feel like Gold Saucer has. I, I feel like Atlantic at the City. time at the time that this game came out, it's Atlantic City, and now I would say it's American Dream Mall. <laughs> Smack down in the middle of the Meadowlands. Midgar Zalem is the Pine Barrens, like the weird swamp where the big snake. Oh is. my god! Oh my god! Yeah, the Midgar Zalem is definitely the Jersey Devil, right? Yeah. Coast of Del Sol could be the Jersey Shore. Holy you got the shit! Beach town. Yeah. As I mentioned, this game was originally conceived of as a so it was supposed to be for the Super Nintendo was supposed to be set in New York City and specifically was a detective game like you were you were like solving a crime <laughs> uh, which is all interesting and and all of those ideas actually made their way into other Square Enix games as it turns out um there's a game after this that's where your next release that was set in New York I forget what the name of it was Parasite Eve no that's mm. a TV show Parasite Eve no, Kill no. Eve is the no. TV show Parasite yes. Eve is the video game and it's set in New York yeah that that I've always wanted to play that that's like a sort of squares version of Resident Evil from what I yeah. know and Nomura also did the character design yeah um, uh, wild uh, I'm trying to think of other locations I feel like Rocket Town has Six Flags energy um, <laughs> great adventure uh-huh sort of a rusted roller coaster yeah I don't know if there's like a temple of the ancients or or, or <laughs> The more fantastic that we settings, know of, that we know of, that's true. <laughs> Icicle Inn is Mountain Creek in the northwest to the sort oh of winter God. resort yeah. and snowboarding. Yeah, or uh, Bear Mountain. Bear in, Mountain. Uh, what, what is it? What is that called? Harriman State Park. Yeah, there are at least a handful of effortless one-to-one comparisons. Yeah, uh, it's it's actually pretty amazing how many we've rattled off already. Yeah. <laughs> huh. I don't know. If Makes you think, huh? Yeah. The life stream is uh, is Secaucus. Secaucus <laughs> <laughs> is Medeal, just like a place that got overrun with purgatory. <laughs> the next station stop is Secaucus. When leaving Medeal, please watch the live stream. Oh shit! I gotta confront my child self. <laughs> well, those are all references for about ten yeah. people. Yeah, the Garden State is losing it right now. I think New Jersey's like our tenth most listened to state of the U.S. So. <laughs> 3.5% of our crowd is, is loving this. Yeah. This one's from I am Lugan on Twitter. Not so much a Final Fantasy question specifically, but Final Fantasy as a franchise. What is your favorite equipment or leveling method? Materia is wonderful Ooh. and there's many combos to make the party however you want. But for me, I have a soft spot for Final Fantasy 8's GF and Junctioning. What does GF stand for again? Guardian Force. Guardian Force. Yes. Or Girlfriend. Either one. Final Fantasy VIII's Girlfriend and Junctioning. <laughs> First of all, I hope you're still listening because I feel like we accidentally have dunked on eight a lot in this episode. So thank <laughs> you for sticking around. Yeah. Um, I actually do also, I think eight's system is really interesting. It's kind of Persona SMT-esque because basically every character has to have a summon like equipped to them. Mm. And then the abilities they get are like things that summon can learn. Um I just found junctioning to be like pretty hard to understand. Like I, I, I have a lot of friends who love eight and they love like how easily you can break the game with it and how creative you can be with it. And I also like that they, they like really wanted to try something different and magic was like a consumable item instead of being tied to MP. So yeah, I appreciate it in theory, but it just never really clicked for me. I honestly really like nine's approach. I think nine strikes a nice balance of if like seven is allowing you to kind of build the characters how you want them. And like, six and before every character is tied to one class nine like steiner and vivi are tied to being like a knight and a mage but mm -hmm. the equipment they get learns different abilities and you can use those abilities when they have the equipment present or once they've like fully unlocked it you can keep those abilities for good so yeah. like 
it was a nice approach at like okay every character here is really well defined but there's enough customization where if you want to put in the work to like make a build you can do it mm. i also really like 10 the thing about the sphere grid is that i i love it in theory but there really isn't that much choice you're kind of just given like a fun presentation but you're really just being like yeah add to the dexterity see if i care it only really gets interesting once you've like fully unlocked somebody's and you can move into other characters that was actually going to be my because again i don't i don't know that much about i guess final fantasy as a franchise I, i've played enough of a bunch yeah. of them um but t- 10 was gonna be my answer specifically for that moment when you yeah. branch out of somebody's sphere into a different sphere i do i will say that 10 i think has the best turn-based combat in the series i think they just really nailed it in that it's really game. good yeah i also really like 10 too their approach at at changing classes was fun. Mm, interesting. I, I, I like 10 more, but to answer your question, because I'm just now naming all of them, um, I would say nine is probably my favorite approach. I think it's a nice middle ground between all these different ideas of like class f- flexibility. And for me, it would probably be 10, um, but 12 has a really soft spot in my heart. I feel like once I finally play five, that might be up there too, because five is the game that basically like started the system adopted by Final Fantasy Tactics and like Bravely Default and yeah. Octopath Traveler, where it's all about like jobs and switching jobs. So I would love to, I, I five is is top of my list of Final Fantasies I haven't played. So this one's from Noah Hertz on Twitter. Does the game's translation and kind of clunky dialogue impact your ability to enjoy it when a better translated game like Final Fantasy VII Remake exists nowadays? Um, My short answer to that is that they're different games, um, which, you know, I I think there's a lot to be said about that in itself. But also, again, they fixed a lot of the rough translation stuff in the modern ports of this game. So it's not really as much of an issue even anymore. Yeah, there's there are a couple moments where it can get in the way, but not really in a huge, meaningful way. And I also think the, the sort of hidden question here is like, does Remake do a better job telling the story? And I think they're really, like you said, they're going after different things. Yeah. So Re- remake is in conversation with your understanding of seven, and not vice versa. Like, right. you, I think you do need an understanding of seven to really get the nuance of, of remake, which uh, I uh, sure didn't fully grasp. I guess the first time I played it. So <laughs> it sounds like it's time to finally dive into New Game Plus on remake, huh? Nomura has ensured that we're constantly playing one Final Fantasy seven in anticipation of another Final Fantasy seven. I'm fine with that. I'm honestly also very fine with that. Yeah. That's the nicest purgatory I've ever heard. There's of. no getting off this train, Brendan. We're There's fully no getting off of we're this train. fully on board for the rest of our lives. Uh, I don't know if I'm supposed to pronounce this Scrosif, but that's how I'm going to pronounce this. Uh, this one is from Scrosif on Twitter. I just like to hear speculation about whether or not the upcoming remake episodes will change major plot beats, and if it does, what it would mean for the narrative. Uh, you and I have already touched on this a lot, but I, I thought maybe I think Zach has got to have a bigger role. They've set it up too much. That seems like a sure thing. Yeah. And I wonder if Zach being more present, like my my big, I don't fully believe this, but it'd be interesting theory is that Cloud will be the one who dies and Zach will take his place. Yeah. Because I wonder if Remake being more interested in other ideas is like, we've already kind of told Cloud's story, even in part one. Yeah. Maybe we can like focus on the other characters and, and have Zach like play a larger role. I, I don't really know if I want that though, because I think it'd be fun to see like Cloud physically confronted with Zach. Yeah, yeah. And and have to like deal with that. But I mean the game is already like teased, like anybody can die now. With the with the fake out of Barrett getting killed by Sephiroth, which really fucked me up. Yeah. So, you know, I think oh my that God, I forgot about that. Oh. Yeah. 
I, I think uh, I also fe- I, I don't know if this is true or not, but the trailer seemed to hint at the idea of like other Sephiroths. Was that a thing or am I making that up? Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, there, there's the shot of Sephiroth. I think it's Sephiroth in the fire and he starts turning around and it starts like kind of glitching out and you see Sephiroth with like essentially different lengths of hair and one of them kind of looks like cloud also yeah um so there's yeah there's a lot of stuff going on there i'll just say that if they kill tifa i'm gonna not play the third one <laughs> yeah i might actually press legal action uh, if, if that, if that <laughs> which i know i know flies in the face of what we just said about the the people writing petitions to square enix when seven came out about Aerith. but i think i think if they if they enter into that sequence and the the driving motivation is we need something shocking to happen and the answer is tifa the game hasn't set that up in a way that makes sense i think yeah i think i think there are two two sides of this one is i totally agree i don't think anyone needs to die i think th- the game is confident enough in the story this time that like yeah we don't we don't need it we're past the idea of a shocking death being like a thing that's required i do think the game being about loss is important so like i agree you know, I think that I, I hope we encounter that in other ways. That's a good way to say it. But there's also a side of it that's like embarrassing fan. Don't kill the character I love part of it. Too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, um, I will say that that killing Cloud, I think, does kind of make sense for what they're trying to do with with these games. Um, it would be most thematically interesting because I think it yeah. kind of further says like we are not tied to what came before, you know? Yeah. I, I would kind of hope that they don't just straight up replace him with Zack. I think that that idea, as we mentioned in the previous segment of like Aerith is dead and her space in the party is like forever empty is is I think I think that's a really strong visual metaphor. Um, and and just having Cloud get replaced with Zack is like when Kate Sith sacrifices himself <laughs> and then shows up as Kate Sith too a little bit. Um, I think honestly, yeah. if if Cloud dies, Aerith becoming the lead would be cool because it's kind of like a Spider Gwen oh, yeah. spin on it, where like Peter Parker is the like yeah. memory. You know, I think that would be cool. And also, it seems like Aerith knows more than she's letting on like i don't know yeah. if i want this to be like a full multiverse thing but i feel like Aerith seems most in touch with like what could happen and like what was foreseen by the the visions of the future yeah i th- personally i would say that we're already in a multiverse scenario i, th- <laughs> I, th- I think yeah. they've like confirmed that and we're doing that maybe not like directly in the text but at least like reading between the lines it seems like we're there and that sephiroth is also fully aware that that's what's happening um yeah. and it, and is trying to find the like Doctor Strange one in three million chance that they can kill Thanos, you know, except it's, I guess the reverse is Thanos. And I, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm open to that. I think that could be fun, but I also, my main worry is that the following episodes will become more interested in FF seven than what FF seven is interested in. You know, yeah. I think that there's so many powerful themes and ideas that are present in the remake so far. They've done a great job at showing Midgar as a place and like Mm -hmm. honestly fleshing it out and fleshing out these characters. And like there, there are moments, especially between like Tifa and cloud, like in the loss of sector seven that like, and, and, and also getting scenes that we didn't get in the original, like when Aerith is taking Marlene out of the sector before it's destroyed and like going with the Turks, like the game knows what it's doing, but I also don't want it to be like too self-obsessed. Like there's a nice middle ground of like recognizing that the game is almost aware of the game's legacy, but also not making it like so kind of narcissistic, basically. 
Yeah, I I would hope on some level that internally the vibe at Square in the production of this game is similar to what it was like when they made the original, you know, where there's like an excitement about knowing that this is a huge deal and and just kind of this like space where creative and cool and like the best idea can exist. I will say, though, like I'm much more confident in the following episodes than I was before the remake came out, because like we I mean, there's that's interesting. Yeah, you 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 definitely historically were like really ambivalent about the remake until it happened and was good, like confirmed good. And then you were like, ah, yes, I will let myself enjoy this. I think I think it was very much like a steal your heart to it kind of thing for you, because the the original seems so much or seems so important to you. And I, weirdly enough, now feel the opposite, where I feel like Remake was spectacular, and I loved it so, so much, and I think it is a cool, self-contained story, and now I'm, I'm horrified by what's <laughs> coming next. I, 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 have, I am definitely in exactly your space, where I, my, my hopes for Rebirth, it's called, I'm, I'm a little bit shaky about. Yeah, well, it's, it's slated for next year. We'll see if that happens, but... Yeah. Uh, I'm sure when it comes out, we will talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I do. I, it's worth also touching on it. We've said this on the show many times. I think definitely in the episodes since the reveal of part two and three coming down the line. Um, but I think it's really worth reiterating that it's Final Fantasy VII Remake. And that's a subtitle and not a description. Yes. And that the second part is Final Fantasy VII Rebirth. And there's going to be a third part. Um, it's gotta it's not, be reunion right i mean that's you like, would hope yeah, yeah the genova reunion and everything yeah yeah but it's not final fantasy remake part one final fantasy remake part two and i think that that's that's hugely important here um thematically yeah i haven't i haven't even thought about the implications of rebirth as who is that applying to in yeah the, cast. the easy one is zach because he exists yeah. but yeah. like I, I it's got to be a swerve a genova thing yeah it's it's vincent coming out of his coffin <laughs> <laughs> i can't wait for that dlc where they get the monsters on board it's gonna be like Avin costello and vincent that's uh, great <laughs> it's so silly uh next one this is yeah. from chrono link on tumblr do you think that a proper remake of the full original story makes sense or should we just take the current remake that is more of a rewrite uh is it necessary to go through the hassle of outdated game design just to experience the original story i'll say again i look i i'm one of those people and i, I gave a shout out to those people at the top where sometimes going back and playing older games like this you don't have any kind of nostalgic attachment for can be difficult it can be hard to get into that kind of stuff and i think this is one of those instances where the Switch port and the other modern ports have those three buttons that let you skip random battles, have a full limit break and full health at all times, and also three times speed. Make use of that stuff liberally. They wouldn't have put that there if, if they didn't want you to use it. Um, if you're somebody going into this game for the first time, you just want to appreciate the story. Because um, yeah. again, they're going after different things. I also don't think it's that outdated. Like I feel like there, I've said this before, but I feel like there are other RPGs of the time that are significantly harder for me to recommend to more people. Like even yeah. Persona 3 which was 2006 on the ps2 that game is significantly harder to play than this one is yeah uh, and I, obviously that's subjective but you know yeah yeah that's kind of the thing is like i know there are a lot of games from this era that i played that i i really just disliked and bounced off there are a lot of other final fantasy games that i disliked and bounced off um and and this one i think strikes a better but not the best balance um like it's it's not terrible and it's it's not like as great as it has been in other games um but if you're the kind of person who knows that you're not going to like it i think going into it knowing that those buttons are there is helpful yeah i was gonna say like i think i think chrono trigger feels more timeless in in just like games like that where it's like okay everything about this is going to be 
enjoyable. Like, yeah. even though I like the materia and I like the battles, like it does sort of feel like a placeholder on some level in mm-hmm. this game. At the same time, I do know of a significant amount of people in my life who didn't play this game until they were an adult, like recently, and really resonated with it. So I think that like cool. it really is case by case. Um, I, I personally think it's much more creatively interesting what Remake is doing versus being like just a recreation. Mm-hmm. Like... I, I think that on one hand, as a big fan of this game, yeah, I would have completely ate up just like a completely one-to-one modern remaster of the original. That being said, like that sounds like what you want on paper, but it when that actually is done, it rarely feels the way you want it to. I think about uh, Zack Snyder's Watchmen as an example of like, oh, yeah. that movie is is pretty faithful to the comic like panel by panel page by page and what you learn it's not a bad movie but what you learn watching that at least what i came away watching that feeling is like adaptation in order to work needs to take their own read on things Mm -hmm. if you're just recreating it page by page it's not going to feel the same way because specifically with Watchmen, that was written to be a graphic novel not a film right you know so you can't really treat pages and panels as scenes because they're different mediums and i think enough time has passed between the original and modern gameplay that like i i think it's only you could almost argue that they're different mediums still yeah yeah yeah, i think you could and i think i think taking a a creative approach at adapting the game and not necessarily fully recreating it i think is i consider to be the best way to do a remake yeah of course, like I also love stuff like the Blue Point Shadow of the Colossus, which is like pretty much a one-to-one remake, but that still feels like in awe of the original and yeah. not like wanting you to replace it. Right. Yeah. I I'm so with you, and I, and I think you look at a game like Demon Souls, which tries to do I think what some people wanted, which is just like talking about Final Fantasy VII, taking that game and just like recreating it exactly so it looks like Advent Children, uh, but on your PlayStation Five. The Demon Souls Blue Point remake is an interesting case where that game is a really faithful recreation of the original Demon Souls, but in some of their creative interpretation have like missed the point of some areas, like thematically and vibe-wise, and some creatures as well, in ways that fans like kind of bumped up against, you know. So I think going into it and saying Final Fantasy VII remake is a is a different thing telling a different story that is in conversation and is referencing your feelings about Final Fantasy VII is not only like a more interesting thing to do in the first place, but is also kind of the only way to do it in a way that still like respects the original source material. At least that's my feeling about it. And also it's worth mentioning because this is the shit I'm so excited about and I still don't know when it's coming. But Final Fantasy VII Ever Crisis is coming, which is that's right. a, a mo- weirdly a mobile remake of all Final Fantasy VII media. So it's retelling Final Fantasy VII. I think the tagline for it is uh, another chance at a remake, which is bizarre. Um, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, it's Final Fantasy VII with all of the stuff that happens in Dirge of Cerberus and Crisis Core and Advent Children and whatever else like intertwined in that story. Um, and it looks really good, honestly. Yeah. I'm excited about it. Uh, There's also the whole modding scene as well, which I know very little about. Part of me, like... Yeah, I'm curious about that. Subjectively doesn't want to touch the original. As much as I'm interested in a remake, like I don't want to like mess around with it. But options exist there if you do want to experience the original with even more options at improving and refining things than the modern console ports do. Mm. What if you could replace Sephiroth with King Dedede? <laughs> Okay, never mind. I'm I'm going into the toolbox with this one. D D D. Oh, and he's lounging. <laughs> yeah. 
my god. The last donuts on Tumblr asks, uh, "What towns are you most looking? For? Oh, we kind of answered this one too. What towns are you most looking forward to getting remade in Rebirth? Are there any silly game moments you hope still make it into Rebirth, like oh. having the dolphin take you up to Junon, uh, or having the giant clock in the Temple of the Ancients as examples?" Yeah, I mean, Temple of Ancients, I think is going to be sick. That's such a iconic part of the game. It almost yeah. feels like a different approach at the game within the game like <laughs> it kind of feels almost a little zelda e a yeah. little bit like D e as well so the one time there are dragons too <laughs> i'm really excited for gold saucer uh i also think I'm, I'm i'm excited to see i i know they're going to do the snowboarding uh and i'm sure it's going to be better than it was on the <laughs> ps1 I also am excited to see if they go with the submarine, which I know is later mm. in the game. But like, I think that that's a really interesting moment in the game where like they add another layer of exploration that is beneath the surface. And yeah. like, that is, I think, where the like I love just going underwater and seeing one of the weapons and be like, oh, no, thanks. And like, you know, veering out of the way and finding all these like sunken planes and stuff like that. I hope we see that as well. Yeah. So, I mean, pretty much my answer is everything. But I think Gold Saucer <laughs> And Temple of the Ancients in particular, I would love to see. I'm interested in Gold Saucer. Um, I don't know if, like, I, I went into this with the expectation that I was going to love Gold Saucer. And then at the end of the day, I was like, yeah, it was, it was a thing. The the stuff that really stuck out to me more is, like, Rocket Town, Nibelheim, yeah. Cosmo Canyon. Like, I, I'm really excited to see, like, fully fleshed out versions of those places. Uh, yeah. Rocket Town in particular. Especially, um, there's a really good... I think it was it was there was a good Jacob Geller video essay uh, specifically about the the wonderful interpretation of Midgar and like living beneath the plate um, and, and what it's like to to live in a space where you like look up and you can't see the sky. You can only see the plate. And it's like the same thing every single day. The only vision of the sky you get is like the, the space in between the pieces of the plate and how well they interpreted that in Final Fantasy seven remake. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that comes down to like obviously great art direction but also like a really strong understanding of scale and i think if you apply that and knowing how good they are at that to rocket town that's gonna be so fucking cool oh yeah part of my excitement for gold saucer is just to do it better you know to have all those like yeah arcade mini games i could see that yeah yeah because like i think with a couple exceptions i did enjoy remakes approach at the weird mini games like there's the weird plumbing mini game with Aerith and tifa <laughs> there's the pull-up contest which like i spent so much time trying to win loved that yeah and uh and i wasn't crazy about destroying the boxes as cloud but like you know i i think they're clearly having fun with those moments and i'm i'm excited to see them take that approach with like the area of the map that is just silly mini games. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This one is from Rob in discord. If you were forced to replace cloud strife with a Disney character, who would it be? <laughs> My answer is cloud strife from kingdom hearts. <laughs> that was what I said in discord. I is replied it? with, yeah, if I actually had to go from Disney though, I, I, I saw this question. So I've had some time to think about it. So I do oh, have an answer unless you want to go first. No, no, no. I don't have an answer. Go for it. If I had to not say cloud from kingdom hearts, I would choose <laughs> beast from beauty and the beast. Cause I think similar brooding similar energy, energy and yeah. identity crisis, not quite one-to-one, -one, but I think that's the closest we get in Disney canon. Okay. Or Wally. Those are the two that come to mind. <laughs> I think Wally and Eve kind of have a cloud and Aerith vibe to them a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like a, a sad emo boy from a junkyard meets a cool girl and realizes like, Oh, I don't have to be shitty. Cool. <laughs> um, my answer is Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> 
for similar also reasons. Also weirdly similar, yeah. Also weirdly similar. And I, I want to be clear, because I just watched the movie. I'm talking Buzz Lightyear from Toy Story 1 and not Buzz Lightyear from the movie Lightyear. Yeah, no, I agree. Because that Buzz Lightyear, completely different set of shit he's got to work out. I feel like Woody and Buzz, Cloud and Barrett, similar kind of buddy coming of age story there. Yeah. Like yeah. adversaries to friends kind of thing. You are a toy. Yeah. Who's Vincent in Toy Story? Slinky Dog. <laughs> That's Red 13. That's easy. Oh, shit. <laughs> Whatever you say, Cloud. Oh, Rex is... Oh, who's Rex? Oh, Rex is Yuffie. Yeah. <laughs> Where is your huge materia? Um, I do... I uh, Anyway, let's move on. I was going to... Yeah. This one else. is from Dakota is asleep. Only considering the original narrative, do you feel like Final Fantasy VII opened itself up to the huge number of sequels and prequels and spinoffs that eventually received? Are there any gaps that went unfilled that you'd like to see more about? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I mentioned earlier that the the Zack stuff, I think, is probably the biggest thing that is like a little bit of like I, I remember when I first played the game that kind of confused me. Like, I didn't really fully understand what was going on there. Mm -hmm. It took a few playthroughs and and a more adult brain to realize, like, what Cloud was doing. I think Crisis Core, even though I haven't played it, I feel like that felt like the most logical, like, spinoff game. Yeah. I don't really think... Sequel, definitely not. Remake, I think it already kind of asks for, like, in this specific era it came out. Because, again, like... You look at FF8 or FF9, those games have a much more consistent visual language, and 9 still looks incredible. Like, mm-hmm. 9, 9 came out at the very end of the PS1, and like games like Final Fantasy 9 and Chrono Cross look like they're on a different console than FF7 did. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I would like more on. I honestly feel like once I watch Evan Children, I'll probably just say, no, I'm good, because I feel like I... <laughs> can't imagine i i need any of the information that movie's gonna have but uh i don't know i mean th- there's a really rich world here so like i think that there's definitely room for creative stories within it you know i think like yeah the game is pretty brisk with its pacing like i remembered moments being longer than they were the story this game covers in 30 hours is pretty remarkable yeah and uh i i think it's fast enough that you could really write a story in any one of these places like you could write a whole i would like to know a little bit more about rocket town and about like shara and sid's weird relationship honestly but that's like a wes anderson movie waiting to happen Mm. but uh yeah, I don't know. Just, just like all of it and none of it, I guess. I'm curious uh, when when the Crisis Core remake comes out, how much of that gets into Sephiroth as a hero. Oh yeah, because I'm I'm curious about that because Sephiroth is you know frequently mentioned in at least the first disc of the game as like a hero who like clearly has like fallen off, you know, fallen angel, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm curious about his upbringing. Not that I need, I don't need an origin story for every villain. You know, I feel like that's like a you know joker 2018 scenario <laughs> uh we, i don't need that but i i just think more context for sephiroth in that era i'm i'm curious about especially considering he's a hero because he like slaughtered the wutai and like won that war you know and i think i think that's there's like a lot of like rich narrative stuff to dig into there about the about the relationship between wutai and and yeah and shinra and sephiroth's involvement in that and zach's involvement in that and like how the members of soldier feel about that war that seems like what crisis core is doing but i also don't know at all <laughs> the the yuffie episode also goes more into wutai and and the remake is having more interest in like exploring 
Avalanche's relationship with Wutai. Because, like, mm. in the original, it kind of feels like Avalanche is, like, just Barrett and four people. Whereas the right. remake has established Avalanche is, like, actually a pretty it has big cells, yeah. Yeah, organization. Which I kind of like. I think it, it makes more sense. Although I do kind of like that Barrett is... Like, I'm king of the club I made, you know, mm-hmm. that that is kind of on brand. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, another thing, too, is I, I wouldn't mind learning more about like Aerith's upbringing with her mom. And well, I think one of the first like gut punches of the game is just like hearing about Aerith from her mother's point of view and like mm. how she was kind of like weird as a kid and would say things out loud that were like kind of out of nowhere. It's, it's very sick sensey, honestly. Right. And I think like her relationship with the Turks and Shinra and there's sort of this weird like like when she was really young like Sang and the other Turks had to be like oh like you're gonna help us like they were like nice to her because they like Mm -hmm. needed her and I think there's there's a story there that I I would like to see more of too yeah yeah that's that's interesting I'm also just curious how they got such a big fucking house Their house is sick. It's Their like one of the sick. nicest parts of Midgar. Do you think it's because she like quote unquote helped the Turks so much? And they were oh, like, here's a plot of land. Honestly, probably. Because have you seen the rest of Sector 5? <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. There's one guy in a tube. Yeah. Yeah. This guy are sick. Yeah, exactly. I think that's that's another nice moment of unsaid storytelling. Mm-hmm. But it's also like, just visually, it's so remarkable. It's like, go there and hear the music and see the garden. You're like, oh, like, there is a better life possible even like immediately here. Right. You know? Yeah. And if it is at the hands of Shinra, then that's even more reason to hate them. It's like, you have the resources to provide this life for everyone. And you're purposely hoarding it to make it like a sought after thing, which is exactly what happens with our society. Yeah. Um, anyway. Bingo. <laughs> this is the last question it's from kind of i don't know why that just reminded me i love that that uh tifa's limit break is a slot machine i i love that she just does every move consecutively it's like one of the reasons i always have her in my party it's yeah. just like also one of her moves is just picking up the enemy and then dropping them behind her it's amazing <laughs> uh, and seeing her like pick up ultima weapon and just like and i really i think of of all the play styles in remake i really like the way they've interpreted her combat in a, in a way that makes sense because like mm. i think it's inherently silly to punch things in the world of final fantasy it's always kind of been <laughs> the goof but like yeah in remake it like works and i like seeing like the materia in her gauntlets and stuff yeah it all makes sense it's so cool anyway yeah. this is the last question it's from coyote cocktail final fantasy 7 is obviously a big deal when it came out but what do you think is its most important quality that has held up so well over time i honestly i think it's the themes that are explored i think it's kind exactly of rare yeah. in a triple a space both for games and for film it's easy to find a really well-made game that's really fun to play and experience but it's harder to find a game of that budget and scale that's actually about something mm. like you know I, I think when you walk away from a piece of media regardless of what it is and you're still thinking about it and you're having these revelations of like oh why does she have a house that big and like what is between these characters that isn't explicitly said there's so much power in what the game is purposely holding back Mm -hmm. and also a game that is saying something about societal problems that existed in 97 and continue to exist today yeah while also saying like the planet and society and the problems we face as individuals are all reflections of each other you can't address one without addressing the other and in a sense like we are all of the same life force you you can't choose to save one without the other and it's tried to say out loud but like i think the game acknowledging how hopeless a lot of these big 
burdens are with like environmental collapse and capitalism and just trauma and grief, Mm -hmm. having any kind of hope at the end of that and have that hope feel earned, I think makes this game so optimistic despite itself. You know, this game like, yeah has a lot of that 90s edge and grit to it but the fact that it is cautiously optimistic and the optimism is rooted in like recognize the home you have one of the dreams sid has as a character is going to space and he walks away from that journey realizing like i always thought it would be this like grand exploration but i what i realized is like the earth is a little kid out in space and we have to protect it and that's Mm. something weirdly uh i don't know if you read it but the shatner essay about going to space he walked away with a similar revelation of like seeing earth from that point of view makes you realize how fragile it all is and how it's on us to help it because no one else is going to yeah there there's so many things you can walk away from this game thinking about and talking about and again i think like i mentioned as a kid this game gave me vocabulary to like explore my own struggles with mental health my own feelings of loneliness and identity and that's amazing and really like games in this space of budget and a lot of these games are more concerned with like making sure they earn their money back and obviously there's always like a capitalist undercurrent of, of everything but you can tell this game was made because they had a story they wanted to tell yeah and i think that's the reason why we continue to talk about it and go back to it yeah that's all really well said i, th- I think specifically uh hearkening back to a point we made earlier this this idea that all the characters and everything that happens in the game aids the theme that's just good storytelling yeah <laughs> man you know like at the, at the end of the day a lot of games have taken the wrong lessons from this one and a lot of stories have taken the wrong lessons from this one um and and the the answer to why it's enduring and why all good art endures is because everything aids the intention and and this game is uh locked up on that front yeah so that's it that's why it's popular that's final fantasy 7 <laughs> also it's just like pretty cool you know, yeah sword spells you know, <laughs> ride giant chickens around yeah that's it's pretty fun it's pretty cool yeah you, you like doing that stuff as daunting as it was to begin this episode it's equally daunting to end it because you know hey, what a bummer <laughs> yeah it's like i kind of in a way the whole show is a Final Fantasy VII bonus. Uh, we're always kind of talking about it and thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure next year, with the double whammy of FF16 and Rebirth, Cloud and Friends will continue uh, to be discussed. Yeah, yeah. And if ever Crisis ever comes out. Um, but just generally speaking, <laughs> uh, I, like I said, this is not going to be my last foray into Final Fantasy VII, definitely. And uh, as as kind of gotten me interested about maybe revisiting some of the ones i've abandoned in the past so yeah for that i i think i mean you know i remember being a kid and getting this and then immediately getting eight and nine and i really enjoyed all of them and you know exploring the series on this show i think while seven is my favorite they all are focusing on different things and they all have their own intentions and they achieve them differently which is cool i mean i think yeah something we talk about a lot with the series is the fact that it is a different pursuit every time, mm-hmm. but it also comes with its own risks. So, yeah. Thank you all so much for listening yes. <laughs> to this episode of Into the Aether, a low-key video game podcast. If this is your first ever episode, the best way to find us uh, is on the internet at IntoTheCast.online. <laughs> 
Uh, we got our links to everything everywhere we're available. Um, if you like this episode, maybe head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. That'd be very cool of you to do. Thank you to everybody who's done that in the past. And we also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash into the cast, where, as we've mentioned many times, you can go and hear our uh, Advent Children episode, which uh, we're intending on being a, like a, a commentary track that you can put on alongside your viewing of yeah. Final Fantasy VII Advent Children. Exactly. Uh, we'll be the could Statler be a fucking disaster, but I'm excited <laughs> yeah. to, to try regardless. At the time of this recording, we still don't really know how we're even doing it, so I'm I'm thrilled. I, I think have it's an gonna idea, be a time. but yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. We'll see what happens. But that's very exciting. Brendan, thank you so much for suggesting we cover this game. I yeah. was also daunted by it, even though it's like part of my soul at this point. Yeah. Chekhov's Final Fantasy VII, kind of. You know, <laughs> just like it's been looming on the table uh, ever since the scene started. Yeah. And I mean, I'm really, really pleased with all our bonuses from this year. And I'm really excited to see what we do next year. I mean, we're, we always had like actually in, in our air table, which is a perk for patrons, we have like drafted bonus ideas and we have a lot of ideas that we hope to do next year, but it is fun kind of finding a theme in the moment and just sort of finding like, okay, like there might be like a hot new game we want to gush about. And then there might be like, what if we, what if we tried this? And what I love about doing these episodes is I'm never quite sure what the takeaway is going to be. Like mm -hmm. for both this and Chrono Trigger, I was very prepared for us to be like, okay, like we can recognize what it meant at the time, but maybe it doesn't hold up or maybe it isn't, you know, all it's, it's talked to be. But I think at least on a subjective level, it was really great basically being reassured that like, yes, Chrono <laughs> Trigger is maybe the best game ever. And Final Fantasy VII continues to be meaningful in my life and continues to uh, bring to mind new ideas and new themes. And it's just a really, despite everything in it, it's a really pleasant game to revisit. Uh, and I will continue to probably for the rest of my life. So there's comfort in that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I don't, I, at least on my end, it's just nice to fill in those blanks, you yeah. know, to, to have only kind of heard wisps and wh whispers about this game over the years, but uh, to have a better, a better understanding and like a full contextual understanding of it and uh excited to go on tumblr and search for final <laughs> fantasy 7 and see some cool fan art that's not oh, yeah. spoiling me anymore yeah vincent emerging from the coffin i'm back baby i'm back baby i what if i play dirge of cerberus next what if that was my move they've got to be remaking that right like they're doing they're gonna do crisis core and then they're gonna do dirge of cerberus what's also the the jump scare of this episode from me to you is that kate sith plays a prominent role in dirge of cerberus no way from what i know yeah reeve is like prominently featured we didn't even talk about Kate Sith that much in this episode, <laughs> which is why, again, we, we will need to talk more about Final Fantasy VII one day. But that's wild to me. I had no idea. Um, I'm, I'm excited for next year when they announce the Dirge of Cerberus remake, of course. But yeah, uh, I got to play Dirge. That's next on my list. Yeah. If you thought this bonus was long, wait till the Dirge special hits your timeline. <laughs> that's also I mean, it, worth mentioning. That's our last bonus for the year. Yeah, that's um, our th last bonus for the year. This yeah. is it. Uh, 2022, wild year for bonuses. Do you have any off the top of your head that you're like, maybe? I know we have that list, but is there any that you're like, I'm kind of hankering to like check this out or do this? Or oh, this? like for future bonuses? Yeah. A big one for me is Half-Life 2 and just Half-Life yeah. in general, because that for me is the big spot I need to fill in. Because mm. I have like no real connection to Half-Life at all, other than like by extension of like Team Fortress 2 and Portal. Yeah, uh, we, we actually had bonuses on Portal 1 and 2 this year. So like that just feels like homework I need to do for myself. Mm. 
another one that would be fun, I think, is Chrono Cross, which I feel like will just be a blast to talk about because we had this like religious experience with Chrono Trigger and I actually played Cross first around the same time I got FF7 and in a way those two games were my gateway into RPGs and that game is so interesting and wild and flawed and great and I think it would make for great conversation so. Yeah, I, I don't know where the discs leave off in Chrono Cross, but I feel like I left that game off like at the end of one of the discs specifically. Yeah, it's like a huge cliffhanger moment that I that I bailed on that game on. And I, I would love to revisit it at some point because I loved what I played of Chrono Cross. So I could see that being on the horizon. I think the yeah. two big ones for me are um, Nice the Old Republic. Oh, yeah, because I, I don't really have a lot of context for like that era of Bioware and i'd like it <laughs> uh i'd like to get some and i've uh, also not played a ton like I've, I've played the first one but i would love to revisit it alongside yeah you. that's yeah. a that's also another game where i know the the spoiler uh me too but <laughs> but even still i'm really curious um and uh the other one and we don't have to do this but I, i'm curious about is la noir oh yeah i've never played it so I, I i'd be down i mean that would be cool to check it out that's a game that like was hugely hyped came out was a critical darling didn't do very well sales wise then kind of like fell out of favor i think in like the gaming community and has since kind of come back as like actually this might have been one of the greats um and i i've been really curious watching that from the outside and i kind of want to learn more about it another one that i'm not sure is on the list but i'm sure is like in the card somewhere is an ace attorney bonus like either uh the great ace attorney chronicles or the original trilogy i think that could be a lot of fun Mm. i feel like i would i would want to do uh chronicles yeah that's the that's the one i was gravitating towards because i feel like that's it's two games and that seems to be like one of the favorites amongst fans so if if we put a pin in it for like three to four years and then i would consider doing trilogy but having just (laughs) finished the trilogy i'm like do i really want to replay all three of those games i had enough i had a hard enough time making it through all three of those games the first time as much as i loved them um it was tedious to to get through those but i do think chronicles would be fun i mean to surprise you on air with an idea but while, while we're chatting it's a good idea i asked you the question anyway oh then uh, of course the eventual we have a patron bonus about deltarune chapters one and two but like when that game is finally out out oh yeah that's gotta happen yeah hell yeah cool dude i love deltarune that game was so fucking good it's sick i have a deltarune t-shirt deltarune chrono cross this is like exactly my avenue is next year the era of the weird sequels that could be fun (laughs) dirge of cerberus (laughs) happy new year dirge is ready head over to brendanbigley.com if you want to find me online thank you so much you can find me at Stephen Hilger and at Stephen Hilger Art. I'm looking up the definition of dirge because I don't actually fully know. What do you think it means? Dirge is like, um, oh, how do I articulate it? Dirge uh, is like the the like ruinous existence of. It's like this thing is here and it's it's a it's a blight. Kind of yeah, it's a mournful song or a lament for the dead. That's yeah, what I found it's kind of like Aria, I guess. It has yeah. that similar vibe to it that's, yeah. a, that's a good title dirge of cerberus it's pretty sick yeah now i'm pumped i can't wait to play it yeah that and shadow the hedgehog i think <laughs> a, a good a good double 
feature for us. Um, Dirt of Cerberus, Shadow of the Hedgehog, and uh, what was Jack Final Fantasy? Bullshit. Oh, Strangers of Paradise. Strangers of Paradise. Yeah, that's the triple yeah. feature. I also want to give a shout out to AJ for editing this one. This was yeah, a, this thank is a you, media AJ. episode. Thank you so much, AJ. AJ, our, our intrepid producer. Um, you can go find them at ajfilari.com. Uh, all those links are in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you Love so you much. Bye bye. Bye bye. Garbage. The online.